Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes, and welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. So today's episode is going to be a fun one. We're going to do a little bit of triathlon news, and then as promised, I'm going to do the blow-by-blow, day-by-day, ups and downs of our experience biking three days around East Texas for 320 miles. I recorded this part that's coming up not too long after we did it, so it'd be fresh on my mind. And it's a fun listen. I just listened to it myself to edit it. And on purpose, it's full of lots of tips and do's and don'ts and things that you could use for when you actually do something like this yourself. And for those that are new to the show or don't remember, my son and I did a three-day bikepacking trip of 320 miles and a big loop, a clockwise loop around East Texas through two different national forests and ended up back in town. And it was awesome, but it was challenging. And the session for today will have lots of fun things in it. Like how I almost got hit by a car trying to pick up a pine cone <laughs> as, as memorabilia, uh, where I broke a spoke and what we did about it, where I had a flat tire in the middle of nowhere and what we did about it. And when is actually the best time of the week to do a multi-day riding event like we did. Stuff like that's all in there. Oh, like how, how Kai almost got attacked by dogs <laughs> and dodged him at the last second. It was kind of comical even. Anyway, that's the majority of the show, but it comes up right after we do the triathlon news. Here we go. I guess we'll start off with something funny. And if you haven't heard yet, a Chinese man ran a marathon in China, chain smoking the entire way. And that was the first bit of it that hit social media. The second bit of it was he did it in three hours and 33 minutes. And there's photos of him doing this. And then it came out, oh, three hours, 33 minutes. I did the uh, pace calculator online. That's an eight minute and seven second pace per mile (laughs) while chain smoking. And then the next piece of news that came out was that they disqualified him because it's setting a bad example. It's unsportsmanlike to be doing that the entire way. And if you're an American listener and you haven't traveled much outside of the United States, one thing that the United States has gotten right is we've banned public smoking. And say what you will about other things about the United States versus other countries, man, the elimination of the whole smoking culture is so good for society here. And then you go other places, a lot of people still smoke all the time, everywhere. So I'm actually not that surprised when you hear about it that somebody did this. I'm sure he's not the first. I have a James Bond book that was published, I don't know, in the 50s or something that was my parents. And James Bond was going to uh, do some spy stuff on some island. He had to swim over there and he practiced swimming in in this book uh, every day until he he knew he could swim the distance. And he... (laughs) It said in the book that he uh, smoked after every swim or before every swim to open up his lungs a little bit. I'm like, oh my God. So the days of everybody smoking all the time are not that far behind us. And still, there's a lot of that ahead that we need to work on, apparently. And good on the Chinese government for disqualifying him officially. So uh, he's not setting an example like this is something that people can do or should do. Uh, One thing I tell my son, he can do all kinds of crazy things, but do not pick up cigarette smoking as a habit. That is one that will wreck your lungs and wreck your life and wreck your athletic ability. Okay, back to the Chinese guy. When I went to look up the pace of what a three hour and 33 minute 
marathon was, and it's an eight-minute mile change. I also saw in the news story that he was 50 years old. So this story just keeps on giving, and it reminds me of a line of thought that people need to remember. A lot of times this, people will say that they did something while being, um, uh, we'll use like vegan or vegetarian, although that's not what I'm talking about because whether that's healthy or for you or not is debatable. Uh, but they'll say, oh, I did it on low tire pressure. Yeah, we'll use that for example. Or I did it on aluminum rims or uh, I did it with uh, uh, no aero bars. You know, they won a race or something like that. And they didn't do it because of it. They did it in spite of it is actually the way you should think of it. <laughs> he did not run an eight minute mile marathon because he was smoking. He managed to run an eight minute mile marathon in spite of being a chain smoker. Okay. Next news story is Ironman related. And we have two choices here. Let's go with the Lucy Charles one. Lucy Charles won Ironman Hawaii last year, the world championship. And last year was the year where they held the men's in Nice, France, and they held the women's in Kona, Hawaii. And it was Lucy's first win, even though she's been trying over and over and over and over again and coming so close. So it was like a really big deal for her to win last year. Well, this year coming up, the world championship for the women, they're going to flip. They're going to do the women's in Nice and they're going to do the men's in Hawaii. And for people that don't know, Nice has a long history with triathlons and Ironmans and such way, way back. So it's a legit, you know, place to have something like that. But Lucy Charles just made an announcement that she said, respectfully, I'm not going to defend my title next year. And here's why. Part of it has to do with the fact that it's in Nice and not Hawaii. And part of it has to do with there's other races. And I think it's the PTO, like the T100 or something like that, is this other um, pro race that has even I could be wrong about this, but even more payout is more financially rewarding. So it's kind of like a mix of the two. And then trying to do both would overtrain her. And she, she was injured uh, winning the Ironman Hawaii race uh, that just happened last fall. And I think she's uh, gun shy is what we call it in Texas. She's gun shy of uh, getting injured again. And she's probably going to just stay away from things that might injure her. And so racing too much, too hard would you know, be really risky. And then also the reason she doesn't want to do the race in Nice is not, well, she's saying it's not because it's not Hawaii. It's because the course in Nice is really, really technically challenging on the bike. And as we all know, Lucy Charles spent her past five, eight years or something like that training specifically to win at Hawaii. And that course is not technically challenging as far as like steep downhills and hard turns and all kinds of stuff. So she would pretty much have to relearn how to race a world championship at that level and to win it. And different courses favor different people. And Lucy grew up as a swimmer and then became a cyclist and runner. So she's not the strongest uh, cyclist as far as like bike handling skills or you've got some people that used to be downhill skiers and then they become uh, <laughs> they become pro cyclists. They're not afraid of, they have like crazy fast descending skills. Lucy Charles does not fall into that camp. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to skip it this year. And then she said something along the line. She intends to come back uh, the next year and defend it in Hawaii, which is really interesting and good on her for, you know, thinking long-term women are usually 
a whole lot better than guys at thinking long-term and not getting sucked into stuff that's just for the competitiveness and short-term uh, challenge of things. They think, they think long game, you know? And that's a really, really smart decision. When I read that, I was like, man, because she made it as a post that you could read through it, which actually was also smart. That way she was able to get her thoughts out exactly the way that she wanted to. And it was very respectful and very nice. And I was like, that's really, really smart. And then I thought, you know, like, why is she doing that? And yeah, the whole, like, she just came off of being injured. I, and also, I think that she's just exhausted from uh, racing and racing and trying to get that world championship. And it took her so long to get it that I also think, she didn't say this, but I also think she just kind of wants a year off from, <laughs> from, from the world championship competition. Because, man, I would be burned out as well. And she finally got it. And, man, did she earn it. And... Yeah, I think it's just time to like to take a take a break and do something else for like a year, and then uh, a different race is still triathlon, and then come back to it. All right, and then the next thing is also Ironman related. The CEO of Ironman, Andrew Messick, I think is his name. He quit slash retired, and they've appointed somebody new. And I have a love hate relationship with with Ironman and the way they manage everything. Like it's a big corporation, and it's owned by stockholders. In fact, I'm, I'm not a big fan of any company that's held by uh, shareholders because everything goes towards making profit and they will treat employees, which would be the pro triathletes, and everything else is uh, to be sacrificed in the name of profit for the shareholders. And the shareholders could live anywhere and be into anything and not triathlon, so they don't care. So their spirit isn't in the thing. So when there's decisions to be made to do the right thing for the sport, the people that Ironman is ultimately... Uh, has to report to could care less. And they're like, where's, where's my uh, 1% stock share increase that I was supposed to get this quarter? You know, <laughs> is it profitable for the company now? You know, and so I don't, I don't like that kind of thing. And you get that situation a lot with companies where the owners of the company or the say it's shareholders don't live anywhere near where the company makes its product or aren't invested in the product whatsoever. And so let's say a factory is polluting heavily. Well, they don't really care because they don't live near where the factory and they live, you know, in a gated community very far away. And so their kids don't have to go to the school with all the pollution and such. And as long as they're making a profit, then who cares then what's actually happening? And that's an extreme example, but that's an example of what happens with publicly traded companies. And yeah, you know, they'll try to tout, tout, roll out the CEO and say, oh, look, he's done some Ironmans and he does some half Ironmans and, and such or whatever. But, you know, the, the main goal of Ironman is to make a profit. So they'll, they'll angle their product to maximize how much they can charge for a profit. And that's why the entry fees are as high as they possibly can make it before people quit signing up. And then the people they cater to, the people they target as their customer base will tend to be people that are like executives, people that make a lot of money. That way they can get more money out of them. And it's just unfortunate, you know, because the real base of triathlon could be, uh, I see a lot of college students and such that want to get into the sport or people that lower income and they just can't afford it whatsoever. And it's, and it's unfortunate because the good thing about Ironman is... When you standardize something, then you have a consistent experience, a predictable experience, and then every race that you go do, 
you know what to expect. It's kind of like the McDonald's of triathlon. And you can go anywhere and get the exact same thing. And also it helps build the sport in a way because that that does, if you standardize stuff, because then you can compare against people and say, oh, I did this Ironman. What was your time? Oh, I did that Ironman. Even though they're different courses, they're, it's the same rules and the same uh, cutoff times and same, you know, whatever. And you know what you're getting into. Like, for example, one thing I don't like is Ironman will typically have packet pickup for a full Ironman two days before the race and not the day before the race. And they come up with some whatever excuse. But the real excuse is to force people to stay there an extra day. And then the city that they're staying at uh, reaps in a whole bunch of profit uh, that they normally wouldn't get. Uh, from you spending money at restaurants and hotels and such because you've had to stay there an extra day. Well, that's prohibitively expensive against people that can't afford that. And when Ironman Texas, which I've done five times, when I would go pick up my packet for Ironman Texas, which is actually nearby, the packet pickup is like an hour, hour and a half away from where I live. I would go pick it up and then come home <laughs> and then stay at my house for a day and then go back the day of uh, the night before the race and then uh, go do the race. And that was really great. I didn't need to... Um, go there for two days ahead and i was not having to yeah have a hotel for all these extra days and go out to eat all these extra days anyway in contrast something that a lot of people don't know ultraman is still a mom and pop owned race and iron man used to be too iron man was owned by some individuals i think it was owned by a woman for uh, towards the end and then she finally sold it to the iron man brand and then the iron man brand sold it to a company that took it uh like IPO or whatever, took it and sold it to a, like a holding company, which is so impersonal, you know? And Ultraman has a stipulation that whoever they sell it to next, whoever owns it, whoever they sell it to next, the rule is the race can never have, I think the rule is the race can never have prize money. And the entry fee always has to be like this really cheap entry fee. <laughs> and it's to keep it small and to keep it from going super corporate and it, and it losing its soul. And it's worked. Ultraman is this small race. And, you know, they've broken out to a series around the, uh, around the country and around the world. But still, it's a, it's a relatively small race that is really just like the true passion of the sport. And, but they have managed to standardize it to all the different people that are putting on the races. You know, there's like Ultraman Florida, Ultraman Canada and such. Anyway, just stuff to think about. And last piece of news I'm so excited about. Kai, our occasional guest host and my riding buddy on the Pine Burden 320, which we're going to talk more about here in a little bit, he got extended an offer to be a pro on an off-road racing team. It's called Team Dirt Camp, and he's racing full pro, but the under-23 segment of the pro division. And they're based out of the Southeast, and they've got their usual batch of sponsors for small stuff, you know, like tire sealant, and Kai's also sponsored by a grip company, ESI Grips. They're really interested in Kai because he does gravel racing as well as mountain bike racing. And the team wants to expand into that. And Kai's really into that and does, does really well. And while they do get a discount on bikes, they are not sponsored by bikes. They don't have a full-blown bike sponsor where they're all going to get bikes. I think they get a discount on specialized bikes. So technically, you can ride whatever bike you want. So he is set up with a great mountain bike, a Trek mountain bike, but his gravel bike is not a racing gravel bike. It's got limited top end and limited tire clearance. It's our vast bikes, which we really do like, but they're not racing gravel bikes. So he is on the hunt for a bike sponsor or help with the bike sponsor. So if you want to reach out and help this new pro get a real racing gravel bike to help kick off his career as a, as a full-blown pro, 
then let us know. There's all kinds of options available. We could mention uh, you or your company on the podcast all the time, get logos on his uh, bike, uh, get updates from him about how the race season's going, about the bike itself. You know, he's a college kid, barely has time for a part-time job. And then these races are all over the place and cost a lot of money. Lots of opportunity for a sponsorship to get lots of shout outs or for people uh, to help somebody that's a great kid and has a really great future ahead of him. If you're interested or you have any ideas about a way that we can get a gravel racing bike under this new pro, then hit me up with an email at texafornia at gmail.com and we'll make sure that we do it right. Heck, even if you have a good racing gravel bike that you're interested to sell at a good price, let us know. (laughs) We are on the hunt for something. And also another way to help out is to get some coaching from yours truly. I've been coaching triathlon from the sprint to all the way up to the Ironman and even Ultraman level, ultra distance trail running, long distance swimming, marathon swimming, with lots of success with lots of athletes. And also between you and me, you know, Kai didn't fall out of the sky and land on this planet as a pro mountain biker. He did all the hard work, but you know, there's somebody that told him how to train and what to do and how to eat for success. And honestly, he actually had lots of coaches and I was always there as the uh, kind of guiding light, like follow that coach's advice. <laughs> Many times we were like, do not do what that coach said. <laughs> Do not run on that injured ankle. Go ride your bike instead or go swim instead. And when to take a break, when to train more, how to strategize for this race, when the breakaways are going to happen, when to do interval days, when to do easy days. And it all worked out. So if you want to get coached by yours truly, then same as before, shoot an email on over to texafornia at gmail.com and we'll get you set up with some full customized coaching and a training plan that'll get you where you want to go. All right, enough of that. Let's go ahead and get started with the Pine Burden 320. This is the day-by-day journal of the adventure. I've been really excited to share this with you guys, so let's check it out. Here we go. Leaving the pool Friday morning. Going to talk about day one, the first of the Pine Burden 320, and also trying to throw crap in the back of my truck. And it's really cold and windy, and just finished rain. Yeah. So we're going to try to get this stuff in here as fast as we can. I can work on this later. Dry out stuff. Let's get going in the vehicle here. Panic! Go! Go! <laughs> as long as I can drive, I don't need the rest of this crap. And I have my keys. Okay, I do have a little trick I'm gonna try. Good, they're already open. I'm gonna eat some gummy bears right after I swim. My shoulders have been uh, tired. And you hear that. I won't chew on the mic, I'll pause it. Hold please. Okay, that took a little longer than I thought. They're cold, <laughs> they're hard to chew. So now I'm doing the chipmunk thing. I got half of them in my left cheek. And, okay, so if your muscles feel hollow, your legs feel hollow, your arms feel hollow, there's a chance that you didn't replenish the glycogen to the muscles themselves. And you have glycogen, blood sugar, in two different places, uh, your liver and in the muscles themselves. And you work out and then don't eat sugary stuff right afterwards. Come on, buddy, you can go. There you go. Then 
uh, the blood sugar, your muscles are like really open right after a workout. And if you eat sugary stuff right then, it'll go right to there because it's getting all this blood flow to the uh, to the muscles. That's why you have that window that they talk about. And the gummy bear thing got started to the masses after a tour stage, I think. Uh, and oh, Peter Sagan came across the finish line. He won a stage and then he rolled right up to his crew and just started eating fistfuls of gummy bears. And everybody was like, what is that? What is he doing? And super, he's replenishing glycogen. And gummy bears are really good for that. Anyway, let's start off with the day one. So we got off on a little bit of a slow start. I think we left at 8.30 or 8.45. And that was a bad idea because we ran out of daylight in the evening. I didn't think we'd run out of daylight, but I also didn't think we'd take a 10-mile detour either. So we got off to a late start and... This really funny thing happened when, uh, when I was a Boy Scout and I was like 16 years old and I went backpacking on the Philmont High Venture Backpacking Trip. And you have a ranger with you the first few days. And the ranger just makes sure that y'all aren't going to kill yourselves by accident out there. And after a few days, they make sure that you got your crap together and you're not a danger to yourself or those around you or to nature. And real, honestly, make sure that you're not going to die out there. And then after a few days, yeah, they uh, leave you. And it's nice. They give a little speech and stuff like that. Well, we had a female ranger. She was really cute and really unusual, but not unheard of at Philmont Scout Ranch in the 80s. And one really funny thing is she said like and you know a lot <laughs> because it was the 80s. And I'll never forget my dad was the one of the two dads on our trek is what they call it and my dad said so uh, where are you going to school because she was a little bit older she said oh university of texas and then he said uh what's what's your major and she said like you know english <laughs> i turned and looked at my dad because i just knew exactly what he was thinking <laughs> but anyway on day three she asked me and a friend another hiker scout guy to uh walk over to her she had her own setup at a campsite in this remote wilderness we were in and she said uh, hey can you guys help me with something over here so we walk over there and out of her backpack and remember it's like everything's so heavy and we're going like vertical all over the place she pulls out like a watermelon and she said can y'all help me find a place to put this in a creek where it'll help chill it down so we can have this tonight after dinner to celebrate that y'all are going all out on your own and I remember my friend Chris and I just looked at each other like, what the heck are you doing? You carried a watermelon? We were sitting here complaining, and you're carrying all your own gear. Rangers carry their own gear. We split gear, but they carry all their own gear. And you're carrying a watermelon? How heavy that is. And she said, yeah. So I'll never forget that. The whole group was just blown away at how badass she was. So when Kai and I started off, I thought I would do something funny. And it would be really funny that when he got, we got to the hotel on day one for me to pull out a beer and drink it. And, uh, and also I like IPA beers and I like celebrating a really long event by having an IPA beer. And the further you go east in Texas, uh, the less likely you are to encounter IPA beers. They are, um, kind of gourmet beers. And the the beers you get in an East Texas gas station would be like Coors Light, Bud Light, stuff like that. Not Hopadillo IPA. And 
So I was like, oh, I'm going to pack my own beer. It's kind of this tradition ritual that we had at Philmont when I was a kid. It's really funny to see the look on somebody's face when they realize you carried something really heavy. And so what I did is I put one in each saddlebag, one for each night, one for uh, night one, and then on night two to do it again. And for a guy to be like, what the? <laughs> and then I sit down and enjoy a nice beer. And it's going to be cold-ish. So I'm like, it'll just be nice, you know? So Kai and I start biking and we are one mile into the ride and I packed them down low for weight distribution and Kai said dad there's something leaking from your saddlebag and I was like oh crap so pull over this is like one mile into the trip and the luggage rack thing that I was using had a sharp edge on it and it pierced the can on that side and thank God it was down low and everything above it was packed in like Ziploc bags and such. And so that nothing else got um, beer on it, whatever. Because, you know, that's going to smell bad. All that. It's going to smell like a frat house. And Kai was like, what the heck are you doing? And I said, I brought one to celebrate tonight. And he's like, oh, man, are you freaking alcoholic. <laughs> It's like, no, I just want to enjoy a beer when we're done, dude. This is fun. So that was uh, the very first thing. And then we went about 20 miles and made a real stop real quick to adjust, like, gear and take off jackets and stuff. And we're out in the wilderness at that point. Well, a remote dirt road in the Navasota River bottom. And I pulled out the beer for sure. And there was a trash can nearby. I threw the trash can. But I made sure to empty the last I don't know, five tablespoons of beer in it first in my mouth. And then, yeah, that was uh, the start. And we've already ridden down this road a few times recently. It's kind of new to us, but we've been riding it lately. And we're now on gravel at this point. And, oh, another thing was we had a tailwind all of day one. And that was really nice because it wasn't much of one, but it just made things easier. So we're riding along. We stop at our first gas station and go, buddy, go. Come on, other people have to get to work too. And when you drive like a turtle, you make other people miss the light. You cause traffic problems for everybody else. Just drive normally. So we stop at this gas station and we grab a sandwich because it's about middle of the day by now. And it's in Bedice, Texas, B-E-D-I-A-S. You can follow along on a map with us. We went from College Station, the south side of College Station, northeast, and now we're in Beat Ice, Texas, and it's close to lunchtime, so we stop and have lunch. And I made a mistake of uh, taking too long to eat. There was a cool dude that started asking us about our bikes, and it turns out he used to race drag race cars. Maybe still does. And he said he had like a 2,000 horsepower um, Camaro or something like that. And uh, we're sitting there talking, and he's like, totally cool guy. Really liked talking with him for a while. But then he started talking about the government and the vaccines have microchips in them and stuff like that. We're like, okay, we got to go. And, but we just had this like nice casual lunch talking to a local. He's a nice guy anyway. Uh, turns out on day two, we did not do that. When we ate lunch, we ate and got going because uh, we, well, we didn't make small talk for too long because we, did, we realized that that's a, a bad thing to do. If we got a late start, which we did on the second day as well. 
So anyway, we start paddling again. We don't know that we're going to be riding in the dark at night yet. And I think after beat ice, we start getting into unknown territory. But the train is still the same. It's like gravel roads, mixed prairie, tailwind, really pretty. Well, no, actually, just kind of blah, bland, but just really easy. The gravel roads make it pretty. And you're just kind of seeing new stuff, houses you've never seen before, nice countryside. And then we get into, I kind of forget the exact order of these things. It might be uh, the uh, highway along I-45. So there's this section of a mile or two of a highway that parallels I-45, and it's there's like lots of trees between us and it. You can kind of hear I-45 off in the distance. But this other road you would not think would be a problem. But it turned out it was a major problem. That road sucked. And I've already looked at the map to try to get around this thing. And I think it's Highway 79. Anyway, it's this. if you look on a map, it's the short section that we paralleled I-45. And that was not fun because of the traffic and no shoulder. But what we did was uh, when a... We survived it, and the big thing nowadays is if you're going to do any kind of road biking, you want a Garmin radar, and the radar will tell you on your bike computer if people are coming up behind you. And on a gravel bike, as opposed to a road bike, you can get way off on the shoulder to the point of where you would not want to be on a road bike, where it's like chunky gravel. You can even get off into the grass a little bit if you got something big coming up behind you, spooking you. And it does make a huge difference. I would not do road touring without a gravel bike or a bike with fat tires on it, fatter tires, where you can actually get off to the side and get in the, you know, the chunky edge and into the grass sometimes because all of a sudden it opens up, you know, roads that you normally wouldn't ride down or you'd be freaked out. You don't have to get in the road anymore. You can kind of get off the road. And then we went under I-45 and or over I-45. Yeah, we went over I-45, which is really cool. And then did a sweeping turn and down into the forest. And that's where things got really pine woodsy. And I need to get off the mic and go inside to W to the ERK. Gummy bears worked out fine. I'll have more for y'all in just a bit. Be right back. All right, we are back. I'm on my way to an eye doctor appointment to get my contacts re-upped. During the break, it occurred to me I should mention some more about clothing. When we started off, it was like 35-something degrees, but we had a tailwind, sidewind, so it wasn't going to be that bad. And some tips I've got is uh, a skull cap is what I wore, a Lycra skull cap. I think I got it from REI uh, years ago, but, you know, because they're kind of thin, and that makes them fit under a helmet like really well, really uh, useful. And then when you're done with it and you're getting too hot, it's I mean, it folds up really small and you put it in your jersey pocket along with other things because it's so small. And then uh, bike gloves plus over gloves, because I know at some point if it gets warm enough, I'm going to be just down to bike gloves. So what I do is wear uh, gloves over them that are a little bit bigger, a little bit looser. And then I have two sets of those. Actually, I have some that are thicker and then some that are thinner. And uh, when we start off early in the morning, I use the thick ones over my bike gloves. And that ends up being just fine. And then as it starts to get uh, warmer throughout the day, I don't need such you know heavy gloves. And then I switch to like glove liners. And those end up being just right. And then they dry really fast because they're glove liners. They're meant to wick sweat. 
and it's just enough to provide a wind block. And uh, here in Texas, we hardly ever wear cycling uh, warmer, you know, leg warmer, leg whatever, long long legged things. And I have a pair of like Lycra, whatever, real thin, uh, for like running and. I don't know. They would be like the Lycra version of yoga pants of some sort. There's not much to them. I've had them forever. I dug those up and wore those. I normally wouldn't wear them at all, except we're going to be out there all day. So I had that. And those pack up reasonably small. I mean, those are going to go into the saddlebag when I'm done. Or the uh, bike luggage rack. I got a pannier rack, left and right. I forgot how many liters total. Each one's probably, you know, 20 liters, maybe 15. I'd have to look at it. And they have like a big bucket each and then the top pocket each on the flap. And they're not waterproof, but they come with waterproof uh, bags that are built into it that you can pull over them if you need to. Anyway, the coup de gras is, well, a neck warmer. Kai and I both wore neck warmers. And mine was uh, handmade from some lycra material that was pink camo that I thought was funny one time to get. And uh, I cut it. I still got a big piece of fabric. I went to uh, Michael's or Hobby Lobby and cut up a big piece of fabric a long time ago and of pink camo and then used that and tied it like as a scarf around my neck kind of and then ends up actually been really nice because it blocks wind from going down your jersey or down your cycling vest I had a cycling vest on and arm warmers i would do double arm warmers no oh yeah i got another one the uh so the neck warmer, you know, warms your neck and all of your blood goes through your neck. So it's kind of handy to kind of keep you warm in a, in a weird way. And Kai had one too that was, you know, production made. It's cool. It's got topo lines all over. We got it in Colorado one time. And then a long, long time ago, I figured out something that works really great is Under Armour heat gear is thin and they make long sleeve shirts that are body, body tight. But I've collected them over the years is they get a little bit stretched out, not so nice anymore, but they still work. And so I actually have three of them. So I had one of those for each day. And uh, because they're thin, but long sleeves, they work as the most awesome base layer ever. So that was what I wore as my base layer every day for my upper body, long sleeve, under armor, heat gear, which is made to help you stay cool in the, in the uh, summer. But again, it's just a little layer, a little bit of wind block. They work. That kind of stuff works in the winter too. And then over that, I would put arm warmers. And I have kind of like these medium weight arm warmers. They're not fleece on the inside. Uh, they're the primal, primal wear uh, ones with tattoo print all over them. They're really cool looking. And those would be what I wore. And then as I got hotter, I could take off those arm warmers and still have a thin layer to protect me from the sun and protect me from wind. And it ended up being just right. I didn't need like a big jacket or anything like that. You know, heat gear, cycling jersey, uh, cycling vest, neck gaiter, arm warmers, skull cap, leggings. I have the leggings uh, that are just, you know, start at your thigh and go down to your calves that you can take off while cycling. You know, made by Specialized or Bontrager or something. The real cycling ones. But I could only find one. <laughs> So that wasn't going to be too helpful. And uh, let's see. But the, yeah, the super trick was grocery bags for 
wind blockers over my cycling uh, shoes because I did a bike a long 100 mile bike ride of like a week before that and it was cold and my toes got numb really numb and it sucked they were numb for like a couple of days I think and it just sucked and I was like oh yeah so what you do is you put your foot in a plastic grocery sack and put your foot in the um, you cut it in half if you want vertically but then uh, you put it in the cor- your toes in the corner and then you put it in your cycling shoes and then you cut it trim it with scissors and then kind of stuff the excess back into your shoe and they end up covering the fronts of your feet your toes just under like the ball of your foot but the sole of your foot will be pretty much uncovered and the uh, tops of your feet will be uncovered or uh, will be covered and it blocks uh, wind really well shoot i missed my exit i have to turn around and go back are we late ah crap we're gonna be late i do have toe covers but i hardly ever wear them cold weather shoe covers uh, i hardly ever wear them and kai was wanting to get some and i said hey just uh wear these here you go <laughs> one time we're on the bikes and we're standing there and he said something about i said hey that's mine and then he's like no it's not i go you wear my stuff all the time and he goes no i don't he was like being serious no i don't and i I just looked at him and then i looked down and there's that net gator with the topo lines on it which was mine and then and then and then i go that's right there dude the very first thing i look at when i look down i go that's mine and then i said uh and then the toe covers those are mine too and he just got this look on his face it was fun and let's see uh Oh, so I go, gave those to Kai, and we didn't have to go buy any, and he can have them. I don't really need them. I just do the grocery sack thing, and I kind of enjoy doing it. And they lasted the entire trip, three days. I just Every day when I took off my cycling shoes, I would just kind of keep them near my cycling shoes, stuff them back into the shoes, and they, they worked. And you already have them laying around. They're totally free. And they actually might work better than cycling, I guess, unless it rains. But what was the next thing? Oh, Kai's black puffy jacket. So Kai asked for Christmas for a black puffy jacket. And quite a bit of it has to do with Lackland Morton riding around after riding the Continental Divide and some other stuff he's done. He's got a really cool looking, it's probably an EF uh, Education First, this pro cycling team uh, cycling jacket. It's got a hood on it, which I think would be even better. But, you know, this will do. Well, we got him one. And you can go get them for cheap at Academy and you know, different sizes and fits and stuff. But we got him one for Christmas, and he loved it. He was, like, super, super excited, and he wanted to take it on his bikepacking trip. And I was like, I don't know. That's going to take up a lot of space. And it, it both does and it doesn't, right? When you pack it down as small as you can, it's not the tiniest thing, but for the warmth it provides, it is very tiny relatively speaking to how much um, you could pack down a jacket that is way bigger and heavier and try to pack it down and get nowhere near it as small as you can get this thing and also be nowhere near as warm when it's unfolded and you're using it so he rode with that thing on a lot on the bike ride and it's black so when it gets dirty it doesn't really matter it doesn't show and he loved it i'd ask him every once in a while i'm like how do you like that jacket he's like i love it it's awesome and i was cool man glad you could uh Glad you really like it. And I said, you do look cool, man. You're pretty cool. I've ridden with a black puffy jacket uh, 
on a mountain bike ride one time that was super cold and i was blown away with how warm i was and because it has a zipper front and the sleeves aren't like pinned down too tight at the wrists it gets a little bit of airflow through it but they're so lightweight that's the other thing is they weigh nothing also for the warmth. all right i'm gonna go in and get my eyes scoped out i'll be right back hold on all right we are back contact thing went okay i'll talk about that in a second but we're passing a ford lightning lariat it's a pretty nice version probably has leather interior checking it out we like tech on uh zentri yeah ford lightning cybertruck just came out and it's really interesting i love the cybertruck except for a couple things which i'll talk about here that is not my truck i just walked up to <laughs> a truck that's like mine but isn't let's see mine's way over here and i love the idea of stainless steel body panels because I don't like washing and waxing my car. I'd rather just have stainless steel. What's like a downside is the, uh, if you ding them, they're gonna be expensive or hard to replace. Mostly because they're Tesla. And Tesla has a problem with charging people a lot. I love electric motors and all that stuff. The, the whole thing where, you know, they, the trucks won't tow very far because they lose half their range. Well, you lose half your range whenever you're towing something heavy with a gas truck too. It's just that refueling your gas truck is really easy out on the road on long trips. And it's not easy with a Tesla, an electric vehicle yet. And then the bigger the vehicle, the nicer it is to have four wheel steering. My truck doesn't have four wheel steering, but it's a full size pickup. But I love having the overhead camera that does the 360 view and that helps me park it. Uh, one reason I got that is I went from a smaller vehicle to this and I was like, I'm not getting back into a full size pickup truck nowadays because they're getting bigger and bigger without um, having that surround camera view that helps me park it. And it does. It is amazing. One thing that I just cannot stand about Tesla's and any vehicle that does this, the new Enios Grenadier, which is definitely not a Tesla. I think it's a gas burner. But the, the no um, gauge cluster over the steering wheel, and it just infuriates me. Like, I cannot stand it. How could you get into a vehicle and just be so brain dead and not you know, care about the world around you where you don't have instrumentation like in front of you? Instrumentation's what's cool, man. Seeing all these numbers and stuff, you have to look and I'm also a big safety guy. And, you know, just like on with cycling, you want the numbers like right up in front of you. The more you can get the numbers out in front of you, like if you're on a tri bike, you have them like between your wrists at your hands. Uh, that is like the best spot. Anyway, uh, you can look at the road pretty much while looking at your uh, at your gauges and know your speed and stuff without having to. Uh, look away from the road off to the right hand side just to a screen and then also burying controls into a multi-touch screen you know tap 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 just to adjust the volume on your radio and they they've gone back and forth on that with cars car drivers again they're not as utilitarian they're using cars mostly for fun or for just to commute but a truck driver somebody that buys a truck they're buying it for utility and they're towing and i like to look in front of me and see the transmission temp it's just like being a bike geek i want to see the transmission temp 
what, what do I have? Uh, my average miles per gallon, current miles per gallon, miles left, my speed, my oil temperature, battery, uh, light, battery life, battery uh, volts, battery health, I guess, fuel gauge, coolant temperature, RPMs, and I got some other stuff. Yeah, mile per hour. And also, if the lane keep is on or off, if the smart cruise control is on or off, they're all buttons and indicators. And then I have dedicated buttons all over the screen. I mean, all over my dash. Because with trucks, they figured out, when they finally did like the big screens inside pickup trucks, they had already realized that pickup truck drivers have zero tolerance for needing to tap through software to get a button to adjust the fan speed on your on your air conditioning that is bullshit <laughs> to tap through screens you want a dedicated fan button fan speed button so my truck has both it has the screen where you can do it through the screen if you want but it also has dedicated buttons and there's been uh twice where my screen's gone black and i didn't know what was going on with it and i could still do my air conditioning and my radio uh, volume and a bunch of other stuff without it and uh, oh yeah and then park reverse neutral drive four-wheel drive auto four-wheel drive normal two-wheel drive four-wheel drive low uh on off uh what is that where the engine pauses stop start thing and um hill descent control the the rear differential lock, which is really cool. And then overhead, and then I got Windows stuff, you know, off to my left. Uh, on the Windows, uh, horn button in the middle. Uh, I got buttons for talking on the phone and cruise control, gear limiter. And then overhead, oh, I got a brake controller for towing a trailer, which is a big deal. I could turn off, um, with switch gear, tow haul mode, my sensors front and rear for, um, you know, like collision alert. That's all manual buttons. It's in the software as well, but they're all dedicated buttons across the dash. And it's awesome. Freaking love it. And then overhead, I've got a button that'll drop my tailgate, which I think is kind of funny. And then overhead lighting, and then an SOS button, which I hope I never hit by accident or need. And then this truck has a sunroof and so opening the sunroof like four different three different ways and then so three different toggle switches for that and i love having overhead toggle buttons it's so cool it's like you're in an airplane at this point and then also the rear sliding glass on the back of the pickup truck glass is uh has a toggle switch for open close you know man it's freaking awesome so tesla's tesla finally wised up and put the horn back in the middle of the of the horn. Here's a Tesla right here. In College Station, Texas, there's not that many Teslas. It's kind of funny. That's a t Tesla S model. I don't know if it's a Plaid or not. It might be. And not having that stuff in front of you is a safety hazard because you want to be able to hit some of that stuff quick without searching for it. You kind of do it by feel a lot of times. Parking brake, uh, foot pedal, Headlight stuff is all switches. I mean, the amount of switch gear in this thing is just awesome. Hazard lights, lane keep, uh, self-parking is a, is a switch. So when you get into a Tesla, you feel like 
they're like, we're going to make all these decisions for you because you're just too dumb to do it. We'll figure it out for you. And if you ever use stuff like that, eventually you're like, no, I want there's there's situations constantly where you can make a better decision than what the computer the computers are not that smart to figure out everything for you so i find that really annoying and also a safety hazard because you need to be able to do that stuff um quick without digging through software sometimes things like you know like the trailer braking and the hazard lights and the the uh, turn signals and the whatever and then also the tesla went back to a roundish um steering wheel instead of a yoke because they realized people like to actually have a steering wheel now the wheel is shaped oddly and um by that i mean it's got a flat bottom and a flat top emily's car has a flat bottom steering wheel she's got a volkswagen atlas and it's got a flat bottom steering wheel and i love it one reason they do that is because americans are fat (laughs) and with a flat bottom steering wheel it allows you to get in and out of the car easier without your leg banging into the bottom of the steering wheel that's a little known fact but also it's flat on the bottom it gives you a place to rest your hands a little bit but the thing that i notice is when you turn the steering wheel you can actually feel where the um, bottom of the steering wheel and the is you know so you know with by feel kind of like with the toggle switches and everything where stuff is instead of like a blank screen where there is no feel and you got to tap on things and search and look and then you crash or it's just annoying right okay so uh the other thing i don't like about cybertruck is the ceo of the company elon musk which drives me freaking crazy about how he treats people for his company and works them you know he wants to go like hardcore mode or something like that and i've had toxic bosses before and you can encourage people to be awesome by setting the example and just giving them some space and you hire great if you hire great people all you got to do is give them freedom and they will create awesome stuff if you hire great people and then you demand that they that you treat them like slaves and that they got to come in no matter what and um and you micromanage them you lose those great people really quickly because they're like the the number one thing that people value in life and in the world is autonomy and that's the illusion of being able to to choose make your own decisions and that's why people love like the work from home or hybrid work thing they decide when they come in and when they don't and they will take a lower paying job to be able to have that autonomy because the sense of freedom is really what people want Okay, so that's our Cybertruck moment. Oh, and then also, like, Elon Musk on Twitter just is, like has revealed himself to be like, what, dude? Are you freaking serious? That is some brain rot you got going on. And you could be in the Elon Musk cult. And, you know, Tesla is pretty cool. Uh, my nephew works for Tesla. He's awesome. The company's awesome and full of great people. It's just one person at the company I have a, I have a, uh, a beef with. <laughs> anyway, a lot of people do. They're, it's kind of being uh, shown, like, oh, my God, for real? And I think the company would be like way better off if they um, if the board lets him go. I think his time has passed. He's become so toxic to the brand that um, you know they're having trouble with sales and stuff. And the board literally could. Somebody explained it to me one time. The board could um, send them packing, and they put somebody else in charge. And you think that can't be possible? But when Steve Jobs left Apple, they found uh, Tim Cook. You know, there's a million people that can run a company really great. It's not that difficult. The uh, the god worship of CEOs is something that also irritates me. They're just, you know, lucky people at the right time that got into the job. A lot of people. I've met great leaders 
in military stuff and at work and at scouts and stuff that are just amazing people and they're you know it's like one out of ten people are like pretty great at leadership it's not like you know one in a million like super genius okay back to the bike ride so uh, one of the funny things that happened on day one was uh, we got stuck on this road where there's a big gate across it and you know a gate across a road will give you some pause and make you think you know should I go into this or should I not depends on how far it's going to go you know well this one was going to go really far and the farther it goes then it gets riskier right because if it's just a short hop you go under it and then get out uh, which we did on day two um, no problem but this is day one and the route is really long so we don't know if we go down this thing if we're going to get stuck and then also the next thing was the amount of fencing and barbed wire and warning signs around the gate and then padlocks on the gate was nuts and there's this thing uh, that you can do it's a gizmo like a metal gizmo that you can put on a gate where a lot of people can put locks on the gate it's really cool like the engineering behind it a lot of people can put locks on a gate but um, any one person that has a key to a lock will unlock the gate so um, I've seen this at um, there's like four or five different groups that have access to this whitewater rafting whitewater canoe place near near where I live you know they all have permission to get there right so any one of them uh, they, they give each group uh, a key to that gate um, or a lock to that gate and then if that one person shows up it'll unlock the gate even though the other group's locks are on the gate too and it's, it's a pretty cool like feat of engineering to figure out a way to do this so uh, in this scenario it looked like all the locks are on this gate because the land is it's it's been locked out but um, there's multiple landowners in the back maybe that have deer leases and a deer lease in texas is where it's this weird thing where people that have a lot of property like i said in the last episode texas is majorly texas was a cattle ranching state first and so they put up fences everywhere and privatized all the land so there's hardly any land dedicated to parks or open land or anything like that it's all privatized and it's all barbed wire and it really sucks and and the whole culture about it too is get off my proper ta and it'd be like the opposite of sweden where everybody has the right to kind of roam around the land it's like the opposite of blm land where you can just go anywhere amongst the land and the the thing that happens is uh i let's say uh, emily's dad has 100 acres right and he could uh let somebody lease the land during deer season for like a weekend you pay him like a couple hundred bucks i don't know what the rate is and then you can go out on his land and then hunt and then he makes a little bit of money you get some wilderness experience you're just out there it's always for hunting these deer lease things but yeah you get some time with your family outdoors and stuff like that right so it looked like this road went down this uh long path of deer leases well land that would also doubled as deer leases so we're stuck at this gate my bike probably weighs like 40 pounds 50 pounds with all the gear on it and then uh and kai's he weighed a little bit more than normal and we're looking at this gate and it's like okay if we go over this gate then we gotta lift our bikes over this freaking thing because there's no getting under it there's no getting around it because it, it directly tied into fence and we're just sitting there staring at it and then i'm looking at a map on my phone going man this sucks because if this if we now that we can't get through this if we decide not to go through this the 
The route around is long, like 10 miles probably of, and it's going to be like paved highway. It's, it's not going to be fun, you know. So we're standing there trying to figure out what to do. And I'm kind of debating in my head, you know, to just go over and go through. But it's really, this gate's like really intimidating. And also the extra effort of lifting the bikes over and stuff and scraping up our bikes. And I'm just kind of like, I was leaning towards not going down and just kind of standing there going, dang, this sucks. And kind of trying to plan a route around. And then that's when these hunters showed up. And they go, hey, what are you doing? And their truck or their four-wheeler you know, brigade that they got. And, um, I mentioned in the last show that I have a lot of history working with rural people and, uh, with property rights and stuff like that. That's part of my job. And I said, uh, I know how to deal with people. And, um, especially if you're already trespassing by accident and you, Oh, you apologize immediately. And then you tell them that you're kind of lost. You thought you knew where you're going, but obviously you're wrong. And, um, but then the thing that you do is you twist it and you ask them for it to help you. And then people love to help you and because it makes them feel smart, you know. And so you say, so I said, oh, man, well, the map took us here. This is obviously we can't get through here and we shouldn't go through here. Um, can you help us get to here? Uh, and on my phone, I've got a map of where we're trying to get. We're trying to get to Crockett, the city of Crockett, the town of Crockett. And this was the way that the map and I showed him on my phone. See, the map showed that we could go through here. But obviously we can't. And he's like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, let me show you and all this other stuff. And then so where are you riding from? We said College Station. They go, oh, my God, that's like I go. Yeah, we're on like mile 80 or something. <laughs> and then he said uh, that it was a grandfather, son and grandson. Uh, so a kid out there, uh, they were getting ready to go hunting. And they start, they're like, yeah, this is this is dear lease. Uh, land, this private land, you can't go down this. But they were nice about it now. But, uh, and they gave us this route around, you know, it was going to be unfortunate. And, um, but they were like really nice about it. And that was really cool. And it's just having like, uh, being vulnerable, but confident that you're not wrong and not acting suspicious. You know, nobody suspects the mailman. So you just don't act suspicious and then you're fine. And, like, like if we had been like, oh, uh, I'm not telling you what we're doing. We're leaving here. They probably would have chased us. And also they're armed with guns, a lot of guns. And they uh, said, um, yeah, we're well, we're going to go kill some animals, which is kind of subtext for um, uh, don't cross us because you're an animal <laughs> as well. <laughs> but I think he was just saying it for fun. You know, I was it was just. It's just kind of you raise an eyebrow, but they're not really scared. And then because uh, you're not haven't done anything wrong, because at that point we're still on a public road. And then um, I asked what they're hunting, and they said deer and hog, pig, wild pig. They call it wild hog around here. And um, wild pigs in the South uh, and in the United States is a major, 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 major problem. They wreck. Um, they root through any kind of fields and stuff, and it is you wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but my God, they destroy fields like it is crazy the damage that they do, and they do it at night mostly, so they're hard to catch and hard to find, and pigs are really, really smart, and so it's become such a problem that pig hunting uh, or boar hunting, whatever hog hunting they call it hog hunting is um year round there is no season. It's just, you see one, you can kill it. It's fun. And because they're considered, you know, such pests and people actually really enjoy hunting them. And then some people make meat out of it. Uh, you gotta be a little bit more careful with like parasites and stuff, I think. But the, um, which just means you need to cook it really good. 
But anyways, we hop on our bikes, start riding again, and uh, we take this long detour around. And instead of going north, now we got to go south and do this big wrap around. And then we get to uh, dirt country roads again. And then there's another blocked access. And I don't remember what that one looked like in my mind's eye, how blocked it was. But it was blocked enough where we were like, this is... Maybe there were signs that said private road and a gate across it and stuff. And we were like, okay, pull out the map again. Now it's starting to almost get dark. And we're like, okay, so then we, we realize if we go this other route, maybe this will punch through. And it did. So it got dark on us while we we're doing this other route, but it turned out to be so cool. We end up on these dirt roads. And it's the last stretch, and we're on them for like 45 minutes, probably, let's say, of real dark, real, real dark, maybe an hour of real dark. And I don't have real bike lights and wasn't expecting to need them. And Kai does. He's got a real bike light, but it's a 700. It's a Cat Eye 700XL or something, which is okay, and it doesn't have great the greatest battery life, but it worked fine for us, but I needed to stay near him. I had two different white lights, but they're more like blinky indicator lights that can stay on solid and they're good for running, but they are not good for biking. They don't throw down enough light. So I needed to stay close to Kai so he could light up the road. And uh, the weather was fine. It was cold, but we're having a really good time. And and, uh, Kai said something about, man, I wish, you know, we weren't stuck out here in the dark. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. And uh, because we're actually, we're really close. And then also don't forget, this is winter. So the sunset's low. It's not late. You know, we got, when we get to the hotel, we got lots of time. It's just unfortunate that it's, um, in Texas, it's either the sun goes down early, comes up late, goes down early and you don't have as much daylight, but the weather isn't a billion freaking degrees. And in the summer you have way more daylight, but it's like, it's like so hot. So you get one or the other here. You know, and they're they're kind of an even swap for e- for each other. In the winter, the weather's way more tolerable, and um, it's like some places summer sometimes. Uh, like say, it's probably like Scotland's summer, Wales is summer, and the uh, but then you just don't have as much daylight. And in the summer, you got tons of daylight, but my God, the middle to afternoon of the day is brutal. So we're riding along on dirt roads. And we know that they're going to go through because I looked on the map and they're officially county roads, but they're dirt on our way to Crockett. And it was just so cool riding at night on a dirt road because there's no traffic. And on occasion, there would be a car and we're going through woods and then prairie and then woods and then prairie. And there was like maybe five cars the entire time for like 45 minutes in the, in the pitch dark. And it was just a slight tailwind maybe. And it was just like so magical, man, like to be able to be riding. And we did enough training where we could ride 100 miles. We knew it. We've been riding easy all day. And it was just nice. Uh, that reminds me. Let's talk about fueling. I made my fuel up with mostly table sugar and a little bit of uh, Gatorade powder to give it flavor and color. So it's easy to see in bottles how much you got left. And I use clear bottles so I can see. And I made... Uh, 100 miles worth of fuel figuring, I think it was like seven hours, seven and a half hours is what I figured with 300. I don't know if I did 325 or 350 calories per hour, because in my mind, I'm like, well, we're going to be going really slow. So I'm not going to be burning that many calories, right? Because you're going easy. Well, the thing is, is we're going really long. So you're going to be out there longer and then 
actually you you pack in more calories in that situation because you're going to be out there so long. But then we did stop for lunch, you know, and then reload on calories and stuff. But then what I don't I don't know what Kai did for fuel. But what I did for fuel was I made the first day's bottles. I did it. I split it into two bottles, uh, a four hour and like a maybe like two four hour bottles, I guess, is what I did. And then and you add sodium citrate um, to your water. And so then I had Camelback with water and sodium citrate to your electrolyte, to your water. And then you've got electrolyte for all the water that you drink. And, and it, it's a, like a, what is it, a quarter teaspoon or half a teaspoon per, um, per liter of water. I should get that right. Uh, I'll look at some point today and then come back on the show and let you know. And that gives you enough sodium electrolyte. And then I put in Ziplocs the fuel for day two and day three. And I labeled them day two morning, day two afternoon, you know, bottle one, bottle two, day two or day three morning. I did it with permanent marker on the outside of the Ziplocs. And then those were in. And then I double bagged those into more Ziplocs. And there's actually a video of like how I did it on Instagram and double bag into more Ziplocs. Because what happens is like that can of beer is if it gets a tear and that stuff starts leaking out, you end up with sugar like everywhere. So the Ziplocs. Um, perform like multiple layer. It's kind of like double boiling where it provides a slip layer or like that MIP stuff in your helmet, the slip layer stuff in your helmet to prevent concussions is if you just have one Ziploc and something starts poking at it, um, you know, it's going to poke a hole in that Ziploc. But if you have two Ziplocs, um, the Ziplocs slide against each other and you've got some sort of a prayer that things are going to um, uh, move and not uh, get and not puncture all the way through. And then on top of that, then I put them in garbage sacks or uh, grocery sacks. And the grocery sacks doubled as if I needed more grocery sacks uh, for my foot um, windsock protection thing. And that's how I did my fuel. And it worked, you know, never had a puncture with the fuel, didn't leak anywhere. It was easy to use. I get up in the morning, make my fuel. Um, I kept my sodium citrate in a separate bag, um, double bagged so that I had that and could add that to my water as needed and then yeah that worked really great so we get uh to the hotel and check in and it's just a holiday Inn express no big deal and what time is it so so we uh check in and i paid for that with uh donations from the show thank you very much and uh with coaching money so this what you do pay for on zentry does go right into our adventures that you get to benefit right from i keep that money separate from other stuff from just home bills and everything. It all goes right back into the uh, podcast and uh, bike equipment and stuff that we put right back on the show. And we took our bikes up to our room on the second. I asked if there was a first floor and said, no, the whole first floor is being renovated. And then uh, went up to the second floor, dumped off our stuff, and then went to Whataburger, which was about a mile. Um, and we yeah put all our blinky lights, had all our blinky lights still on, and just rode over there real quick and it was cold, but we had our, our, we were bundled up and like Lisa said, you know, just wore our cycling shoes in there. And, uh, Lisa advised, you know, to eat first before you go to your hotel because you're not going to want to get out of your hotel. Well, we had so much time, you know, cause the sunset so early that it wasn't going to be, we could just tell it was going to be all right. And we dumped off our stuff, went to the bike place. Now one piece of equipment. I did pack, and I'm glad I did, was a simple cable lock with a master lock, um, a keyed master lock on it. And the master lock's pink. That way I could uh, find it easily. And it was coiled up in my bag. It weighs very little, um, very simple. 
And it's just really a deterrent, you know, uh, somebody could cut it with cable cutters, like no problem, but it worked great. So Kai and I just locked our bikes to each other, went in and you lean your bikes up against the window so you can see your bikes, but then they're also cable locked to each other. And that's always been enough. Um, the, the double action of being able to see it and that they're locked to each other is usually, uh, just fine. And we ordered pretty big meals, you know, and milkshakes, I think each of us. And then there, we were like, okay, now we need to go to a convenience store and get some snacks. Cause what's going to happen is we're going to wake up in the middle of the night and we're going to need some snacks because it ended up, instead of being 110 miles, it ended up being 122 miles. And so we were hungry and in the cold, you know, you burn more calories and such. And we were like talking about where are we going to go? Where's the convenience store? Oh, we could, we looked out a window and there's one like across the intersection you know, a quarter mile down the road and it looked kind of sketchy maybe. And we're like, okay, well, I guess that one's okay. And then Kai goes, wait a minute, we're in a shopping center. The, the, the doorway right next to outside of Waterburger is a convenience store. Bikes are already locked and everything. That was kind of funny. We're like, oh yeah, okay. So we walk out, you know, take a right, walk 20 feet, walk in the convenience store. And then, uh, the funny thing that I grabbed was Oreos and it was a double pack of Oreos because Oreos are really high calorie. They're terrible for you, but they're really high calorie. And I knew that in the middle of the night, it's one thing to have food. It's another thing to have food that you want to eat, which is a problem sometimes. You don't eat enough unless it's food that you want to eat. And if it's a high stress environment where you need to eat a lot, you need to make sure that it's food that you want to eat. That way you'll eat it or else you're going to feel like crap. And so I grabbed Oreos and something else, maybe a Diet Coke, because I like Diet Coke, the carbonation of it and the flavor. And then we biked back to the hotel and... I don't think we really got much right. Oh, if you stay at that Holiday Inn Express, the town's small enough where they don't have a um, uh, like a real, even though they, they claim to have, you know, breakfast in the morning. Well, they still just do the thing where they have this thing where you fill out a card of what you want for your breakfast and then they make it for you. Because apparently it's still so few people and a small enough town. And Crockett really doesn't have an industry that I can think of besides the logging industry, maybe. And, you know, there's not much there for tourism and stuff. So I was surprised they even had a nice hotel. So they um, had us fill out these cards. And on the card, you marked what you wanted. And they said one card per room. I'm like, okay. And so Kai marked on it. And he's like, do you want, um, uh, do you want eggs? They had like sausage biscuit and they had muffins and then they had yogurt. And I go, dude, check off everything. <laughs> if it do- if it doesn't matter what the cost is because it's complimentary, I said, check off every box. We'll probably eat it all in the morning when we get up. And we should eat it all so we got energy for the road. And then uh, we slept, woke up, and then I went downstairs. Arkan and I went downstairs to go get our food. And they said, um, and the reason I'm telling you this, so if you ever stay at this hotel and you want to replicate this trip, this is a thing to know. They said, um, you only marked one. Kai's the one that filled out the card. But I remember looking at it and it was the instructions did not say that they, they said, uh, you should have put two next to everything. So we only made one of everything. And I looked at the lady because food is like a crisis for us, at, you know, for this trip or lack of food would be a crisis. And I said, uh, we really need all of it for both of us. We're doing like a hundred miles, something bike ride today. And we just did one yesterday. Like it's a big deal. And she just kind of looked at me. She's real nice. And she goes, Oh yeah, I'll just, I'll just make additional. I go, okay, thanks. Like that. So we ended up, uh, so make sure you put two on that card. If you ever use one, a card like that or whatever system they got going on there. And then, um, if you got two people and 
Then we got up. Well, we got up in the morning. I got this food and there's coffee and it's, you know, it's a Holiday Inn Express, you know, which is actually pretty nice. Uh, and it's, I love these kinds of hotels because they're nice, but you're not paying for anything. And so <laughs> they had a swimming pool and stuff like that. We just laughed. And then we fell asleep watching like Family Guy or something funny on TV. And then I got up in the middle of the night and um, ate some Oreos. And in the video, uh, I was giving Kai crap because the next day he's eating Oreos. And I go, where's mine? He goes, you already ate all yours in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I already knew that. But I was like trying to get him to give me some of his. He's like, you already ate yours. But I think uh, that was day one. And I posted on Instagram some pictures before we went to sleep. And I said that this has just been awesome. You know, even though we had some detours that we had to take, just the experience of the, of day one, biking 122 miles on these bikes that could handle it and with fitness that could handle it and um, being, you know, not alone with somebody that you that you care about, somebody that's fun and it's about your same ability and uh, the sense of adventure and being um, it's risky, but you're also competent enough to handle it. That's the Zen. Uh, oh, there's another word for it. It's not just Zen flow state, but it's like the flow state in general is where um, it's a challenge, but you're competent. Right. And that you kind of lose track of time and you enjoy it. Uh, so you have to find something that you find just challenging enough or you have to be engaged to do it. But it's not so challenging that you can't do it because you're completely out of your element. And something that's too easy is uh, boring, right? And the uh, uh, – oh, that reminds me. I saw this weird clip the other day where this really professional big-time interviewer – I don't remember who it was, but he was British – was – oh, was he? My mind he was. Anyway, he's interviewing this lady, and the lady looked pretty well put together. Um, and sh and he said, and it was like titled like the most awkward interview ever or something. And he said it was in the middle of the interview, or the interview just got started or something. And but the whole point of this one thing was the interview was about something else entirely, which you're going to find out here in a second. But the, the there was a weird awkwardness at the beginning of the, of the interview, and he goes, "You're you're one of the most." awkward interview uh subjects i've ever had and she's like okay and she didn't say like why maybe she did say why but she didn't really you know and and but anyway the why comes out and he goes you just sit there in silence and uh if i don't ask you anything you don't say anything and she goes oh yeah um i can sit here in silence uh all all uh all day you know if if i don't have anything to say i won't say it and <laughs> He's, and he's like, yeah, this is really, really awkward. And he goes, well, I can. And she, she, and she said something. She wouldn't try to be competitive or anything, but she's like, I've got a lot more experience than you. He's like, this is really weird. This is freaking me out. And he, and she goes, well, I have a lot more experience than you with this. And then she, he goes, well, he looked like he was about ten years older than she was. She looked like about forty, and he looked about fifty. And she, he said, um, well, I've been interviewing people for like. 40 years and I'm older than you. Well, 30, let's say 30 years. And he goes, and I'm older than you. How could you say that you have more experience at this than me? And she goes, well, I was in solitary confinement <laughs> for days or weeks or something like that at a time with nothing to do except be silent and just sit there with nothing. And I could do this for hours. We can just sit here and stare at each other for hours. It doesn't bother me whatsoever. <laughs> the twist that that took, you know, I was like, oh, he's interviewing some lady that's, uh, 
uh, either been she's still in prison, but just dressed up nice for the interview or she's out of prison. But whatever she was in prison for uh, and then was in solitary confinement for something, you know, you get that for for being nuts in there, like starting fights or something like that. I was like, oh, my God, this is this just took a twist. And then and then the and then the clip ended. And I was like, whoa. But the uh, what Zen training teaches you to do is if you don't need to say anything, it, it gets you comfortable with not needing anything and not needing to change the environment. You enjoy the environment as it is and you enjoy the presence of nothingness. And so I have this tag phrase. Um, well, Iron Man uses this phrase where they say impossible is nothing. Right. And I don't know if they still use it, but they used it forever. And my tagline is nothingness is possible. <laughs> Because in Zen, you once you get comfortable with yourself or whatever, you don't need extra. You don't need to start conversations. You don't need approval from others. Um, and everything's interesting. You can just sit there and just observe. Like uh, I'm looking down my street right now. There's these different mailboxes. I could sit here for like three hours and just look at at the uh, at the trees and the mailboxes and be totally fine. Doesn't bother me whatsoever. And uh, Zen and the Art Triathlon and Long Distance Cycling will teach you. Um, of how to do long distance bike rides and be fine with it because you're like absorbing the environment around you. It's just fun. Anyway, that was your moment of Zen. And we are, I forgot what the, what led into that, but I think we're wrapping up day one. Oh, I posted things and said I had a time of my life. It was so cool. And uh, I just couldn't wait for day two and a map of where we went on day one and then just like passed out and went to sleep and I think got minimal stuff ready for the next day, which is both good and bad. Like, um, it really doesn't take that long to get ready to get going on the bike, but, um, I took too long the next morning to get going on the bike. I was only a few minutes longer than Kai. Both of us took too long, um, to get going on the bike, but, uh, and then that led us being in the dark again because we didn't get on the bike until like 8.30. We could have gotten on the bike at like seven. I think the sun comes up at seven. We could have been on the bike an hour before that. And um, both days and we ended up in the dark uh, an hour longer than what we needed to if we'd started earlier. So and then what that does is it caused this cascading effect. You're now an hour later and then that darkness is kind of exhausting. You know, riding in the dark takes a little bit more effort, even though it's fun. And then now you're even more you're tired later and then it's harder to get up again the next morning again. You know, and so you get this cascading effect, uh, this this death loop of every morning getting up later than you should and getting going later than you should and ending up in the dark again. But um, okay, yeah. So that's day one. I'm gonna get off the mic. I'm gonna go eat some lunch and then we'll record day two because that got really interesting. Be right back. Oh, while I'm parking my truck in my driveway, there was one other thing and doing my surround cam so that I can see that I'm driving to the grass. Another thing that was really cool uh, that a lot of people have and know plenty about, but it's so useful is find my family. So Emily could actually keep track of us. We have we all have iPhones just because it's easy. And the um, the fact that she could see where we were and that we made it there and stuff without having to overly check on people and reply with phone calls and stuff like that um, all the time was actually really, really nice. And I strongly encourage that. If I also, I for, if I forget at the end of the show, this is really interesting. The We have air tags um, and like two of them are dead. I don't even know where they are right now. And then, but one of them, I just put a new battery in and it happens to be on one of the bags that I use to pack um, into my bag for um my bigger bag my saddle bag thing pannier pack uh, for the trip right well on day three when we were leaving kylie's house 
Um, my dirty clothes. Yeah, I think it was just pretty much my dirty clothes. Clothes I knew. Yeah, just my dirty clothes. That um, I left it at Kylie's house in that bag. And it's kind of like this small, lightweight uh, knapsack kind of thing. But it happens to have an air tag on it. This is really crazy. Guess what happened? A couple days later, Kylie showed up at the house with that bag. Because um, it was convenient for her to swing through College Station from Huntsville. And, uh, and Kai was with her. And they said, hey, were you following us with an air tag? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And they said, we got this warning that uh, there's an air tag nearby. And it just kept popping up. And you know what that is, guys, audience? That is Apple switched their technology because they have a problem with people stalking people with air tags. Like, say I wanted to stalk somebody, I could put an air tag under their car, like glue it under their car, and then follow them on my phone everywhere, and then they would never know, right? But what Apple did is they said, um, Apple's big in the privacy stuff, and they made a technology change where if an air tag has been near you, and kind of following you for some X amount of time. I don't know what it is. And it's not yours. That's weird. And it'll start giving you alerts on your phone that somebody is following you with an air tag. And then maybe some options to do with it or something. I don't know. I didn't see the error message. <coughs> I mean, the warning message. But that was really interesting and a cool technology thing uh, that's going on. And I used that air tag uh, one time I flew to San Diego a couple years ago. And... That backpack happened to have that air tag in my luggage. I think maybe I did it on purpose. They lost my luggage. It wasn't at luggage pickup. And then I used find my air tag to actually locate my suitcase. And there was like, you know, out of um, the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, you know, where it's that warehouse that's like goes on for eternity. And um, that's what it looked like. <laughs> all these suitcases. And I just walked right up to my suitcase and I go, that's it. And then they go, well, can you prove it or something like that? And I go, yeah. And I held up my phone and it said Brett's AirTag. I go, my name's Brett. It says Brett's AirTag. My phone's pointing at it. But I still actually had to approve beyond that with like tags and an ID or something like that. And I'm like, what else do you need, dude? But anyway, um, yeah, that's a cool little technology thing. All right, I'm going to go in and eat. Be right back. All right, we've had some lunch and had a sandwich. What else do I have? Chocolate or peanut butter. Peanut M&Ms. If you're going to eat M&Ms, which really aren't all that great for you, get peanut M&Ms because the peanuts are actually good for you. All right, let's start covering day two. We got a little bit of a late start and, you know, we were like, oh, man. Well, I was sitting there like posting something and Kai goes, Dad, we got to go. Oh, and it felt nice to take a shower and uh, have a fresh change of clothes. And Dad, he, or Kai's like, yeah, Dad, come on, we got to go. And he's always bugging me about taking too long doing stuff. And the reason I take too long to do stuff is uh, as I get older in life, I'm like, I've realized that it's not worth rushing through stuff. <laughs> so I do everything more slowly. And uh, when I started towing an RV trailer, I was like, this is the speed I like to drive because <laughs> it's so much slower. But also, I think the more I run and I bike and that becomes like a normal speed or, you know, speed I do a lot. Driving a car seems to be, it does not seem to be too fast. I like driving fast if I have to. But there's no rush, you know, because you'll get there. You get there on a bicycle. This is like bonus speed right here. Anyway, tangent. Part of our plan, you know, for our first ever bikepacking trip was to make it, you know, the Zen Flow thing and be just, uh, just hard enough. So it was going to be hard enough to do over 100 miles every day for three days in a row and exploring new places. So uh, let's take a little bit of the edge off and, and not try to add camping to it in the cold. You know, if it was like perfect weather, yeah, sure, absolutely. 
but it was not. So we had our breakfast, like Greek yogurt, sausage biscuit, milk. I didn't really want the milk, but I'm like, you're drinking it anyway. <laughs> you're powering it down. And I lost weight over the trip. So I uh, kept adding uh, food and I was like, all right, let's go. and then I said, let's go. I made my fuel. Let's go out the door. And we go outside and I'm a little frustrated because Kai's right. You know, man, we got a freaking late start again. This is not cool. As later, later than the day before, possibly. But I may, I think it was like 15 minutes earlier than the day before. But anyway, not good. Until we get outside and it is crazy dense fog, which is really dangerous on a bicycle. And the first five miles or so were on a highway close into a town with no shoulder. And that was not cool. So the earlier we left, the worse it would have been and also the darker it would have been. And the later we leave, the more it would have burned off. So you got your even swap and, uh, you know, one thing, one way or the other. But, uh, yeah, that was the interesting thing starting off uh, in the morning. And we got going and really wasn't all that sore because we never went really too hard the days before. Yeah, I probably averaged when I'm pedaling along in the 120-something heart rate. And, yeah, like, I think my legs hurt just a little bit. And then we... Uh, take a turn off on a road and we start getting into the edge of the Davy Crockett National Forest. And it went from gentle rolling to hilly, fast and really hilly and awesome and deep in the forest. And it was kind of like being in the Ozarks where you couldn't see anything a little bit because of the fog, but a lot because of the density and the fog started to burn off eventually. But we're riding around and uh, the National Forest isn't what a lot of people think it is, where there's like no houses allowed. I don't know if it's the way in other states, but in Texas, the National Forest, people are allowed to live there. There's houses there. Um, there's not a lot of new houses. And I think there's like building restrictions if you live in the National Forest. So you can only do so much. So it tends to be kind of a preserve. And we uh, were riding along in just steep climbs and downhills and all this stuff. And it is fun, man. It is really, really pretty. And it's it's uh, dirt, gravel, off-road, um, definitely not paved. Some of it gets really, really steep. And the weather's perfect. It's quiet. I've got my headphones. Um, I've got, for a bike computer, Kai has a 820, 850 or something like that, or 580. I don't know. It's one with a touchscreen on it and a bigger screen. And that's nice. And you definitely want one of those if you do gravel off-road stuff because it allows you to pinch and zoom and uh, and you're always using the map whenever you're doing adventure biking. And as opposed to a bike computer where you gotta use buttons to toggle on the zoom in and out like I had to do. And I was just using, I have a Garmin 520, but the battery life's, it's old and the battery life's uh, crap now. And that's that was the the, go-to bike computer for triathlon racing uh like eight years ago or something like that and i just really haven't upgraded since because it costs money and all my money goes to kai stuff so my my uh modern bike computer you know <laughs> that's kai's not bike computer now we only got enough money for one person to have nice stuff and that's going to be kai for and the next thing is uh yeah so i'm using my wristwatch but i have two wristwatches i have an older garmin phoenix Five, which I like because it looks more like it's got a silver stainless steel ring around the top of it. And it's a beefy watch. It's got good battery life. And still to this day, it's pretty great. The maps on it don't show 
roads or anything like that. It just shows your course. It's really primitive when you think about it versus the, uh, it might show maps. I don't think it does though, but my Garmin 945, I think is what I have actually shows like other roads and contour lines and stuff besides the thing you're supposed to be on. And that's, a, that's uh, really nice. And we're, um, I just wanted to give a brief of what we're using for bike computers. But the other thing is, is I made the course in Garmin Connect. And when I threw it in there, uh, I told it to throw it on both watches. That way I had a backup computer. Now, what I do is I use my nicer watch, more modern watch, and lightweight watch as my bike computer, <clears throat> the Garmin 945. And then if I'm biking, and then if I'm doing that, <coughs> then I use my Phoenix, which will broadcast heart rate uh, as my heart rate strap, but it's on my wrist and it's good enough. You know, a chest strap's better. Kai uses a chest strap for real racing. But I got a good idea of, of, you know, my heart rate anyway. I'm one of those people that's trained long enough where I can guess my heart rate at any time and be within like two beats. But having the Garmin course loaded onto two, well, now three bike computers, two of them are watches. Mine are both watches and Kai's bike computer. That's really smart to always have a backup of the route. Because if you get into or one of the, if it's only on one device and that device dies and you start using your phone, you could go through your phone battery really quick. And we both have modern, up-to-date phones that we've gotten within the past year. Uh, so the battery life's really good on those. And then also, uh, we're both wearing Aftershocks, or Shocks, S-H-O-K-Z, headphones. And mine are the little bit older model that are a little bit smaller, more lightweight, but are super waterproof. IP67 and Kai's are IP65 or 60 or something like that. And the difference between those, his are nicer and more expensive and have better sound quality, but they are splash resistant and mine are uh, the next level up where like they're dunk resistant. If I get in the water, uh, I can get into like a couple of feet of water for like briefly for like seconds and uh, which is what happens and they're fine. Like if I accidentally jump in the pool or get in the shower with them on and then realize it, then they're fine. And so those are the better ones, in my opinion, for what we do and the amount we sweat. And yeah, we're riding along, listening to music, podcasts, just chilling out. We're uh, we're doing the, the guy thing and also the Swedish thing, the Scandinavian thing, where you're together, but you don't talk to each other. That's enough. <laughs> like uh, talking all the time would be uh, really, really annoying. But I do have a thing that... Emily started listening to the podcast a few podcasts ago, and it's so cute. Like, listen to her. She, like, gives me advice and stuff. It's so great. But if I just kept thinking, the more I think about this gravel biking stuff is if we could get Emily on an e-bike uh, tandem, I'm not a big fan of because you can wreck on those more easily. But we got her on an e-bike where she could keep up. Then, oh, man, the cool conversations that we would have the entire time would be so much fun. It'd be like a dream come true for her to be able to go gravel biking with me. And... Um, I used to think e-bikes were stupid until I heard somebody say um, that uh, they use it 
or spouse, whoever, whichever person was a weaker cyclist was a, was able to keep up with them now, and they were able to bike together. One person used an analog bike, and the other person uses an e-bike, and and then they actually can go the same speed, and then it's they get to actually bike together. And I thought, dude, that is really cool. I want to do that. So Emily, listen to me. We got to do that. That'd be so much fun because the entire ride, I'm sitting there thinking, there's so much that I can't wait to come back and tell Emily about. And she still hasn't been on a gravel ride with us. And I, I just, as much as we tell her that it's cool, I still think that you can't understand like how cool this is to be out in the wilderness or on some quiet gravel road away from everything and then riding on a bicycle until you do it. And on a bicycle that's built for it, you know, a mountain bike is too slow. Road bike, it's too much uh, panic and fear of, of uh, thrashing your tires and wrecking. But a gravel bike is just so perfect for it. And it's so casual and so much fun. And the stuff you see is so cool. Okay, so the National Forest starts going from a, little, a couple houses kind of here and there. You know, it looks old and well-established and whatever. And then it starts getting raw. And by raw, I mean there's nothing and it's vertical and the roads that are out there are just ground up from logging trucks. And we saw on occasion some logging trucks and it reminded me, there's some movie, I can't remember what it is, you know, where the lady gets killed by a logging truck. There's lots of movies where somebody gets killed by a logging truck and it reminded me to tell Kai, hey Kai, when you see a logging truck come down the other side of the road, or we're, we have to share a road with a logging truck, get the F off the road or get away from it as far as you can. Logging trucks are dangerous. Here's your PSA for the um, for the podcast, is logging trucks are super, super, super dangerous. And the reason why is no load is exactly the same. And they're all, every tree is different and unique. And you don't know, you know, like when you, when they stack them up on a logging truck, they're gonna try to get as many as they can on there right? And then you end up with stuff that's um, unstable. There's some sort of accident in the road up here. No, something fell off of a car. A couch fell off of a car. So people are going to go around it. It's okay. I'll let you go. And a logging truck can lose a log off of it. And if you've ever seen somebody killed by a, by a log, it does not take much. Logs weigh so much it's it's almost like they're made out of lead when you when you realize how heavy they are they are so heavy and then they'll roll and so if one comes off of a truck or the guy loses control of the truck because the load gets off balance and also they're really long and they just they're randomly long and they just tag the end of it it could take a wide turn and freaking take you out man so you don't mess around with logging trucks they're so unpredictable even to the driver especially to the driver and that's the problem so we're coming across occasional logging trucks like, oh, cow, this is uh whoa. <laughs> and uh, we went through a small town. I forgot the name of the town, but it was the coolest little town. And it had a um, their mascot was the Bulldogs, Division 2A national champs. You know, it's a town where football was everything big, big, like courthouse or something or high school, but a little, little tiny town. And there was a funny store that was called Ladies in Action. And I thought that was funny. I took a picture of that. And then kind of changing out of clothes as we get warmer. And then we end up on this logging road that was like a main logging road. And when we got on it, there was a gate, but the gate was wide open. And it just looked like a normal logging road. Uh, or it looked like a normal road, 
we start going down it and turns out this road is sand um and it's but it's rained a few days ago so it's not mushy sand anymore it's packed sand mostly and thank god because with gravel bikes um, our gravel bikes will hold up to a 42 uh, millimeter tire which is not that big um, the front will hold a 47 a 48 maybe up to a 50 and that's what i have on the front of mine is i have a 47 um because with aftermarket forks you know the, the front doesn't match the rear and they'll give you the smallest uh when somebody says a gravel bike won't hold bigger than a certain size tire often the front will hold a much bigger size tire and uh, you put that bigger one in the front and then that really helps a lot with the control of the bike because that's your steering tire and it's your front suspension and all that and you can actually run different width tires front and back and so i was running a 47 front 42 rear kai's probably running a 40 40 and with my weight and with uh the weight of the pannier packs and the extra 20 pounds of gear that i'm carrying probably altogether more than kai Nah, about 10 pounds more than Kai. But anyway, all the stuff. Um, in the past, when we used to ride in this area uh, near Palestine, Texas, and the and the pine forest and stuff, where it got real, it gets really sandy like this. Um, I had a real problem with my bike sinking and um, and then me getting stuck and having to walk and me crashing a lot. But that was on a different gravel bike uh, before I put wider tires on. And I, I slowly started like upgrading tire width until I quit sinking in the sand. So I wasn't, I, I know that I will not sink in the sand with deep sand if I'm riding 50s front and back. Well, this bike won't hold 50s front and back and plus all the extra weight. Um, there was a risk of, of me sinking in the sand and getting stuck and then having to walk. Um, and, but two things helped us, you know, that the sand had been wet a few days before and now it was kind of packed. And then also the other thing was, what time is it? I need to get inside. The other thing was that um, the sand, uh, it was downhill for a long, long ways. For like an hour we rode downhill. And at first you're like, oh, this is fun, you know. And that also makes uh, going down sand easier, right? It's easier to ride down a sand dune than up it. <laughs> you know, you just kind of put your weight back and let the front end float and then you'll go. But two things really concerned me. I'm like, one, dude, if we had come at a different time and this was sand sand, like soft sand, we would have been screwed. Kai can float over a lot of stuff, but he's been running a little bit narrower tires than usual with less tread because now he's racing that thing. And then... Uh, and plus he's carrying a little bit of extra gear and then i definitely would have sank and i'm like holy crap we would have been walking forever and so i packed all this extra wilderness survival gear in case we got stuck and that is a place where we could have ended up maybe not getting stuck there but walking for like hours down this road um and getting really frustrated and then that would have eaten up our time so much that we could have gotten stuck out in the forest and it could have been a bit of a disaster and then uh the because i'm like dude if we tried to do this in the summer where we have more daylight if this was just loose sand holy crap we'd be screwed and then um the other thing was we're going downhill yay okay downhill 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 yay yay dude we're gonna have to go back up right and like i said one of the things that was making it easier uh because we were i was sinking in the sand a little bit and on occasion there'd be a little bit of a pocket of uh, loose sand and i kind of i never had to step off my bike but it, i had to work the bike a little bit um 
and it's generating extra friction. You can tell that you're going instead of doing like 15 or instead of doing like 20 miles per hour downhill like you would on on gravel. Um, we're doing like 12 because of the sand. We're not having to pedal very hard, but it's like it's slowing you down. Now, if we had to go up that. That would have sucked. Even with the sand being packed and a little bit damp, that would have sucked because of the resistance. But we could just mostly kind of pedal normal and normally and then uh, and make progress. And it did, I'm telling you, it went downhill for like an hour or so. And it was just, it started to concern me after a while because I'm like, we got to go back up. Now, what happened, luckily, was when we got off that road and started to need to go back up, it was a hard gravel, a hard dirt and um, hard, hard soil and, um, and, and or pavement later in the day. And thank God, because that was really freaking me out. I'm going to crack the windows because I got damp. Oh, not that far. I got damp swimming stuff in here. And now I need to go inside and get some W to the ERK done. But another thing was we got to the end of that road, finally, finally, and uh, it was gated <laughs> on the far side. And I was like, it was an easy gate to go under. We had to hold each other's bikes a little bit as we went under. It wasn't like that serious of a gate. But there was a sign on the other side that said no pass through or something like that. And kind of, I just kind of laughed. He's like, what do we, we got to turn around? And I'm like, no, we're not turning around, dude. You know, freedom is just, uh, you know, one foot on the other side of this gate. And uh, we would have to go back two hours or something like that to come back around this thing to get around this gate. Uh, and on the other side of the gate was open road, you know, that was fine. And it was just comical. Like if we had come at it from the other direction, if we had done, we were doing this whole loop clockwise. If we had done it counterclockwise and encountered that gate, we might've been like, Oh, Hmm, I guess we can't go down this road. And, um, turns out that, uh, you could go down that road and the other end was open. So I don't know. That was kind of uh, freaky. And then um, I'll talk about more when I come out, but I really want to talk about what we saw when we were on this long road in particular and in this and another road like it. Um, uh, it wasn't sandy, but it was like a deep forest uh, in this area about the, the true wilderness that we encountered, how cool it was. I'll be right back. All right, we are back. Just real quick, I was watching a video. I'm not done yet, but with the uh, – they just published you know, with the – Norwegian method and and the Norwegian method came on the scene triathlon training a couple years ago really blew people's minds you could use science you know to predict but you know just staying right below lactic threshold that kind of thing I know there's all kinds of like proper terms for all that stuff and I and I do know them <laughs> don't add me but anyway I, I'm just trying to use the real general terms here the uh, the video today they're talking about oh last year Oh, and also they blew everybody out of the water. And we're talking about, uh, what's his name? Uh, Christian Blum Blumfeld, Blumfeld. And then the other guy, what's his name? But anyway, the other guy said that, uh, oh, and, the, and the, the signature of this training method is they're constantly pricking their ears uh, to get, I think, it's not, it's not, lactic acid is like not really a thing. And, uh, but it's to get something. I forgot what it is. God, I'm trying to think while driving, while having just seen this like three seconds ago. I'm not really prepared for this conversation. But what I am prepared for is when he was saying, uh, last year was the worst year of his life. And 
he uh, not Christian but the other guy and he said that he's got an injury and his Achilles tendon and da 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 right so the point being is you can do all the science in the world but it comes down to the fact that you're just a human right and you can for example you could apply all this science to an 85 year old and they're not going to be all that great compared to it's still a 20 year old doing nothing it's probably going to be faster than an 85 year old a 20 year old doing like no science it's gonna be faster than an 85 year old using all the science in the world my point with that being nothing against older people as i get older the the point being is that you're human and there's it's not mystery but you know you need recovery and all this other stuff and you can write details out uh to the nth degree uh, but what actually happens in reality is a lesson in zen it's a zen teaching is reality reality is what matters you know and there's several things about that there's one uh james audubon said if he's the one that wrote the first like book on birds sort of and he said you know other people said well it says in the book it does this one thing but the bird does this other thing in the wild he said if the bird and the book disagree believe in the bird <laughs> and then also mike tyson famously said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face so uh the other guy with his injury had the worst year of his year last year worst year of his life last year with results and it's a little injury and, and a nagging injury and what made me want to turn on the mic to record wasn't all the previous stuff that i just told you it was i can tell you when you're over an injury because he said something about he thought the injury was gone but it's not i can tell you when you're over an injury i've learned this over my many injuries you've overcome an injury when you forgot that you're injured that's how you know when like a couple months down the line you're you're something comes into your mind that reminds you that you had a twisted ankle and you're like oh i totally forgot i had a twisted ankle a while ago that's when you're recovered from that injury and no sooner you have to forget that you're injured and that's how you know that uh it's gone enough to not be a factor in your life anymore okay let's get back to the davy crockett um so going down this long road and then the next road out in the national forest and this is before lunch even this was one of the coolest most wild things because the road is a logging road but as we got lower and lower and lower in elevation the road started to get uh creek channels that were crossing it and two of the creek channel crossings might have had some sort of one i had a decent little bridge but it, water could flow over it but it was concrete and another one had kind of a weak ass bridge and then it was just creek channel crossings that and the road got worse and worse and worse and with gravel bikes it's so crazy even with luggage strapped to the back and i got a suspension stem on mine by the way and we uh were able to um go, go down and then climb back up the other side sometimes we had to walk and oh it got so cool and having to pick our way around things and and uh so now we were in territory that would have we would have been better on a mountain bike but a gravel bike was actually doing the job it wasn't that bad and 
Kai, Kai even got stuck a couple times, and uh, and where I what did it, I think probably because I just had wider tires on that with more tread. He's riding like semi slicks, and uh, it was just like really, really rugged and really raw back there. And I was like, this is crazy. And also, man, if we get stuck back here, we're screwed. <laughs> okay, so there's that. And then in the previous episode with our interview with Lisa, uh, Hustle and a Half, she said, yeah, you know, like you might break a spoke, but then you really can't do anything about it. And then also uh, flat tires, uh, you know, bring, bring a spare tube. Kai and I both packed a spare tube, one on each bike, and, and I packed some extra sealant. And in case we got a flat that was so bad, like a tear, a sidewall tear that was so bad that it wouldn't plug or a hole so big wouldn't plug. And I'm riding along and I hear like, oh, crap. And it was a tire. My rear tire got a hole in it. And then it but it's self-sealed, but it lost some air. Quick tip. If you're doing stuff really rugged, I've heard with gravel racing and stuff that some of the top pros will purposely ride tires with heavier tread on them if it's a worse course where there's sharp rocks. And also you're right behind each other and you have to take the line of the person right in front. You can't see very well and there's dust and everything. So you end up going over sharp rocks and you can get a flat. That happened to Kai at the Ozarks race. He got a flat early on. Where I think that if he was riding on his own, like I was, I had a little bit of vision in front of me. Um, he wouldn't have ridden over whatever rock uh, punctured his tire. But he just couldn't see it, you know. So if you're doing a bikepacking trip and you're going over rough stuff, a heavier tread tire actually will prevent you from getting flats instead of a real thin tire with no tread. And then honking at a friend. And then uh, we stopped and took out a co2 and uh topped off the tire with co2 cool thing to know about co2 is co2 is a smaller particle than regular air the air that you is out amongst you is mostly nitrogen i think it's like 70 percent nitrogen that's I, I always think it's funny when people say nitrogen charged it's like okay the air is already 70 percent nitrogen it's not that amazing you know but nitrogen is is a bigger particle than oxygen well, i don't know if it's bigger than oxygen but it, no, i think it is and then um it's a bigger particle than co2 and if you inflate a tire with the co2 then it will uh leak faster so i just kept in the back of my mind that i topped this off with co2 but by tomorrow i'm probably going to need to top it off again with a, a hand bike pump that i had um in my frame uh my frame bag and let me pause this right here and Another tip, something that I learned riding latex tubes, which probably, which got really big a few years back, like 10 years ago in triathlon, because they do make you ride faster. If you're riding inner tubes in your tires, latex is the fastest inner tube. But latex is very permeable, and you can inflate a tire with a CO2 that's a latex inner tube, and it will leak air, I think, in minutes. You'll get be back down to flat. And uh, that's just a thing to know that CO2 is not very good. Uh, this new thing where uh, people are using TPU tubes, the ones that are colored, like really crazy colors, and they're plasticky, but they're real lightweight. It's in between. Those are in between the regular black butyl inner tubes that you got and the um, the latex as far as like the smoother rolling and also air loss of regular air. Now, something that is really, really interesting when people say, I got nitrogen charged shocks and da 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 da, right? Well, you might notice this. It kind of like if you get new strings on a guitar that 
you have to tighten them or new cables, uh, shifting cables and brake cables on a bicycle that in a, in like a month you need to take it back in to get it worked on to get things tightened back up because the cables stretch it first. Well, if you air up a, a tire from scratch, right? Totally deflated and you air it up. Um, the smaller particles of air that aren't nitrogen will leak out faster. And then eventually, as you air up a tire over time and over time and over time, over and over again, as you just top it off every once in a while, guess what you end up with? You end up with almost entirely nitrogen in your tire. And then your tire holds air a whole lot better. And you hardly ever need to pump it up again until you get like a flat or something like that, or until you let the air out again. And uh, you have nitrogen charged tires. <laughs> it's it's just a fact of like the 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 I don't even know what the effect is called. But anyway, all the small particles leak out and you're only left with the big particles. And then eventually it's all big particles. So anyway, I made a mental note that on well, every day kind of check the tires before we get going. But in the morning, I'm probably going to need to pull out the bike pump and pump up my uh, tire because I put CO2 in to top it off and that's going to leak out faster than regular air. Uh, ambient air, I guess. Atmospheric air. <sighs> okay, so then we're riding along and we finally end up on a paved highway with decent decent shoulder and then the Garmin radars uh, are telling us when there's a car on occasion. It's really, really nice, but there is an urban developed high traffic area coming up and it's called West Livingston. It's the city of Livingston on Livingston, Lake Livingston. And uh, it's the west side of it where a freeway or a highway goes past uh, like the east side, this, the, the southern east side of Lake Livingston down by the dam. And there's a lot of development down there. And um, we're going to come up on this. And I didn't know how bad, I haven't been to that area in years. So I don't know how bad it's going to be. And uh, on the map, I couldn't really, you can't really tell, you know, like how bad it's really going to be. And you can see, you know, there's businesses and things like that, but you know, whatever. But I figured that would be a good place for us to get lunch. So we'll make use of that development and find like a decent lunch. And we get to the area and it is congested, heavy traffic, but thank God they had wide shoulders. And Kai and I we're going to stop and get sandwiches at like a gas station, right? But then a quarter mile down the road, uh, off off of the way that we want to go, I saw a Chick-fil-A, right? And I'm like, oh, Chick-fil-A. Um, you know, the, the good thing about, um, the only good thing about mass-marketed uh, chain stores and uh, Iron Man branded events, <laughs> the McDonald's of whatever, is you know what you're going to get. And the quality is consistent. And that's why people like that stuff so much. When you go to a Chili's, there's a Chili's on like the island of Guam, I think. When you go to that, it's going to have kind of the same menu of the Chili's here in Texas and the Chili's in California and the Chili's in um, the airport, right? So all over the United States. Kai and I were like, oh, I told Kai, I said, hey, instead of getting um, lunch, and I used to work at a gas, well, convenience store. And, um, I used to be one of the people that checked the, the dates on sandwiches and made sure that those wiener dogs that are the sausage wiener things that are rolling on hot rollers under there are, uh, you know, fresh and that's uh, put away the old ones too. I'm telling you, <clears throat> that's not done very well. <laughs> There's a reason that uh, you need to be really careful when you eat that stuff because. 
the person taking care of it is making barely minimum wage and they could care less and they don't understand food poisoning in the first place. Okay. And, uh, but Chick-fil-A, I was like, Hey Kyle, let's go eat at Chick-fil-A. And he's like, where did you see one? I go, yeah, I see one way down there. And so we went over to Chick-fil-A, but before we turned, we saw the highway that we needed to keep going on was hilly congested had 18 wheeler after 18 wheeler after 18 wheeler and was two lanes and um no shoulder and that's what we're about to get on and it's so what we were on is about to get a whole lot worse as we cross over this really congested area and head towards the dam on lake livingston and i said you know let's go to chick-fil-a and and then while he and i sat down i, I went in to go order or whatever i said okay that road that we were just on is gonna remember how like we were going, oh no, this is not good. Like it's really not good. And I said, uh, let's let's sit down and and look at some maps and see if we can find a, a way around it. And let's do that while we eat some lunch. And we did. And I'll pick up with that story after I go back inside and take the take the walks for a dog <laughs> and have a nice little uh, Friday after work beer. No working out tonight. I've swam two days in a row. Ran last night, biked the day before. It's Friday night. Uh, got a big open weekend where I can train a lot. So I think training tonight, just for an hour, I would probably do a bike ride tonight on on, on uh, Zwift. Uh, doing that tonight would be kind of counterproductive to having good workouts this weekend. So yeah, gonna have a dinner and an IPA, and then I'll be right back on, and we can wrap up this day and then day three. Be right back. All right, I'm back. I walked. I walked the problem, dog. Let's let Zoe out. One dog can go in the backyard. The other one, River, tears up stuff. Wants to pick a fight with the dogs behind the fence, and it gets all muddy. And it just rains, so there's definitely mud out there. Okay, uh, I'm in the kitchen. Let's do a beer review. I've got, I've only got one kind. Oh, I really like this one. Uh, Standard, Mountain Standard IPA from Odell Brewing Company. The can is a light green, very light green with a little bit of um, soft white and... It's out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Let's read this. Boy, what I love an IPA sponsorship. This is Mountain Standard, a tribute to our backyard and the Rocky Mountain lifestyle. Hand-selected modern American hop varieties build layers of complex hop flavors with juicy tropical notes and bold, vibrant aromas. Join us as we help define the Mountain Style IPA. You know, hops are actually related to marijuana, the buds. <laughs> I had friends a long time ago. They were potheads. And I mentioned that to them, and they were like, or I mentioned to them, I used to live in California, and they had a hemp, a hemp ale, and it smelled like weed, and but it was just hemp. And uh, I told them it was really, really good. And my friend, he was also a brewer, the two of them. One of them was a brewer, and, you know, brewing in his garage. He's like, dude, we should buy a bag of weed and then use that. And he was pretty well off. He was making a lot of money as a DBA, and... <laughs> pot at this time was still is very illegal in texas and i said uh well so we did the math on like how much would eat it was like i don't know three pounds or something which isn't much i'm just guessing on the number i don't remember but whatever it was it isn't much in hops it'd be like 50 bucks or 20 bucks but in weed it was going to be like a thousand dollars and then we were laughing about like well we know somebody that might have that much and then what uh, uh but then imagine driving it from where I live to where he lives. And then when the um, get pulled over by the cop, 
and they want to arrest you with an amount. You know, there's an amount that's like for personal use, which is certain crime. And then there's an amount for distribution, which means you're a dope dealer. And this would definitely be that much. And then that's a whole other level of crime. And you're going to federal prison. But try, trying to talk to the cop. No, we're not going to smoke it. We're making uh, beer out of it, you know, just to see. <laughs> Come on, you know, just to see. That's the one where you say, I'm an Eagle Scout. It's not going to get you out of it like it does when you shoot fireworks illegally. Okay. Just fun facts from Brett, from Brett's life. Okay. Uh, Kai and I sit down and we have a big fat chicken, spicy chicken deluxe. It's got bacon and cheese on it. And I'm full by the time I finish that thing and just picking at the fries. But I ate the fries on purpose anyway to load up on calories because I know we're only halfway through the day. And... What happened? Um, oh, we sit down and start looking at the maps. And the blessing of gravel bikes smiled upon us because that road that we were about to have to go down was really ugly, right? But just like two-tenths of a mile down that road was a turnoff in what looks like could be a quiet county country lane that winds around and then meets back up with that horrible road miles miles and miles and miles down the road and away from this urban development where there's way more traffic and that was so cool you know with gravel bikes touring bikes with fat tires you can especially tubeless tires so they self-seal oh another tip about let's say that you are going to pack a a tube and you're going to be riding on that tube for a long time right and you just got a flat the really smart thing to do is to already have sealant in your tube because that's what we do in triathlon is we already have sealants in our spare tube and you put a new tube in, right? But without any sealant in it, well, guess what, guess what happens the next time you get a, get a pinhole in that thing, you run over a staple or something like that. Boom, you got another flat. So what you do is you pre uh, sealant your tubes and there's something funny about that um, where uh, years ago, there didn't used to be a whole bunch of different sealants. There was just basically slime. You want to go back outside? I've taught him to ring this. I got like reindeer bells on the door. You want to go back outside? Okay, no. And I just realized how much that's like my grandmother's house growing up. Uh, she was this heavily Swedish German one, and they had a uh, reindeer bell, sleigh bells on the um, on the door. Maybe at Christmas time, at the lake house. And then when I got bells to put on our door, uh, it reminds me of that. And River goes over and hits the bells with his nose or his paw. And that's how you know he wants to go outside. And it sounds like like a reindeer bell, but year-round. We have it on the back door all the time. Okay, anyway, back in Old Army, which is a that's a Central Texas college station, Texas A&M saying. Back in Old Army, uh, when we just had slime, slime worked pretty good. Slime works fine as a sealant uh, under low-pressure tires. And then slime, uh, but slime does not work well under high-pressure tires. And the cool thing about so like on a road bike tire, narrow tires that are under higher pressure, you know, 80, 90, 100, 110, 120 PSI, slime doesn't work so good. Uh, but the thing about slime is slime never goes bad. You can buy tubes that have been sitting on the shelf at Walmart that are filled with slime. They're pre-made with slime in them. They're called slime tubes. And I ran with those in uh, mountain bikes um, for a long time. Uh, ran with a set for years, actually, in San Diego with lots of cactus and stuff. When I took my tires off eventually, I had green dots all over the inner tubes of where uh, 
slime seal the tubes and then slime never goes bad regular sealant you got to replace it you got to top it off about once a year okay so my point being is you can get an inner tube if it's a fat tire tube and put uh, slime in it and then it'll be um, pre-treated with sealant kind of cool if you don't like it you squeeze it out right you're like oh you know the slime isn't really working for me i'm gonna put something else in it well you can squeeze it out and then put in uh, latex sealant down the road if you wanted to because the question is is well what if i never use the inner tube you know for like months and then you've been uh when you finally do use it it doesn't have any sealant anymore you're like oh if you use slime it'll have sealant in it for years <coughs> you can just squeeze it and feel that it's fun okay so kai and i finish our meal uh go into i go in the bathroom top off my my fluids and stuff and my what i do is if i'm doing a really long day is i go ahead and fill up a gel flask you can buy flasks that have that you can put gels in. And for this, I put in six servings of sodium citrate. So six liters worth of sodium citrate and a tiny little gel flask. That's, and I color it with green food coloring. And then, and I wrote the number six on the outside of it actually. Then, so I remember. And then um, when I fill up a water bottle with water, I squeeze about a sixth of that gel flask of sodium citrate pre-made into the water and then i've properly electrolyted my water uh-huh. pretty smart right and i used three units of that three doses of that on day one and about another three on day two i just topped it off each day with another three uh let me look i said i would look to see what it is if it's a quarter teaspoon or a half teaspoon you buy sodium citrate in bulk online Sodium citrate's very healthy. It's a half tablespoon. A level half tablespoon is the low end of what you would need for a liter for your electrolytes, your sodium electrolytes. And you use that instead of regular salt because regular salt, um, instead of being sodium citrate, is sodium chloride, and chloride makes you get sick. That's why people get sick drinking um, seawater. One of the reasons they get sick. If you ate the amount of salt that you actually need for a day in the form of and you're heavy sweating and in the form of sodium chloride, you start to get sick to your stomach. But sodium citrate doesn't do that to you. And you'll notice on all sports drinks, it'll say not sodium chloride, but sodium citrate for the better sports drinks. And that's how they actually package the sodium. So Kai and I take off. Uh, we've topped off our water. Um, we've eaten a nice big sandwich. And we get on this road briefly. And oh, my God, the road is a nightmare. And <laughs> Kai got mad at me because I turned left. He didn't see but the 18-wheeler that was just rumbling behind me and having to go, you know, eight miles per hour because we're going uphill on a steep hill. Kai didn't know that I had made eye contact with the driver and waved at him that we're about to turn left. I pointed, uh, made a sign like, just, like, give me a second, you know, like two fingers kind of close together, like that you can see through, like you're pinching. Just give me a second. I'm about, I'm about to turn right there, right? And he nodded at me. He's like, okay, thumbs up. Kai didn't see that. <laughs> He was, Kai was in front of me and Kai thought that that truck, that we were holding up all this traffic and the truck was mad at us. So Kai pulled off to the right and then I got to the, to the turn. I turned off to the left and Kai's in a parking lot on the right. And then a little while later, Kai catches up with me and he goes, what are you insane? <laughs> Way to ride with holding up 18 wheelers. Now everybody wants to murder us and everything. And I go, Kai, you were, you didn't see, I actually... Uh, the guy knew that we were turning. He's like, no, he didn't. Uh, we were arguing. It's kind of fun. I'm just laughing because I'm like, no, it's a, it's fine. And uh, but Kai was frustrated because he thought that I was getting us killed. Uh, but that's you know, if uh, just like the deer hunters and stuff, 
if you hand signal and wave and ask for forgiveness while you're doing stuff, people are way nicer to you than you think. They want you out of the road as much as uh, you want to get out of the road. Believe me. Okay, so we get on this country lane, and this is one of our detours, for example, that adds more mileage. And it's amazing. Oh, it's really, really great. So if we ever do this again, what, I've, what I know is if we ever do this again, I'm not going to look at the route. I'm going to go look at the planned route. I'm going to go look at the actual route that we actually did and modify the route to follow those roads because they were so much better um, the, when we hit a problem. Okay, so then we finally get to Lake Livingston. And I notice we're still going, well, we're going up and down at this point. And then at the dam at Lake Livingston, uh, and usually when you cross a dam, you know, you cross on the, the dry side of the dam, obviously. Um, and there's very few dams where you drive across a dam. You have to do like a road south or, uh, you know, downriver from the dam. And those are lower. So the thing is, though, Lake Livingston is a really big, beautiful lake. And I, uh, I've done some stuff on that lake, but not much. I grew up mostly going to Lake Conroe, which is an ugly lake. This lake is really big and really beautiful. And I wanted to take a moment and look at the lake. And Kai's behind me for some reason. And I got ahead of him, which was rare. And we, um, oh, we were going to go down this one road. No, that was after that. Anyway, this happened a bunch. Anyway, I got ahead of him for some reason. And I took a detour off to the right to go look at the water rushing out of the back end of the dam. And you get a little bit of a view of the lake, too. And I kind of wanted Kai to see the 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 immenseness, immensity, whatever the word is, of this lake. Like, it is big. And one of the reasons we were picking up so much wind that we were having to cycle into at, for the past, like, half an hour, an hour, was um, we were across the fetch of this lake. So there's nothing stopping the wind. And that's the, the wind is coming at us from the direction of the lake. So the wind's picking up speed across the lake. Nothing's slowing it down. But I wanted him to see this lake. And we kind of got a glimpse of it. And then, um, but we did see the hydropower side of it, you know, where the water's you know, coming out of the back end of it. That's pretty cool. And then um, I grew up in Tennessee on Watts Bar Lake. And Watts Bar Lake had the third or fourth largest dam in the United States, and you could drive across it. And um, I've been on a tour inside of it to the hydropower, the big generators and stuff. And there's, it's a nuke uh, facility as well. It's, there's a nuclear power plant nearby. And so it's really impressive. So dams are pretty cool. And I um, and it's a navigable. It's on the Tennessee River, which is navigable. So there's barges and locks needed to get around the dam. And I just grew up around this all the time. So I, I can appreciate it. And what a damn story. The Where did I sit down my beer? There it is. So I did not appreciate it, looking at it on the map and on the elevation profile, how I just, I didn't think it was going to be this bad. I thought the climb out of the bottom of the dam where we crossed it at, at river level. Um, oh, I've also been on the, the tour of the inside of a dam on the Navajo Reservoir in New Mexico where the pipe goes out into the lake deep underwater. And there's a maintenance tunnel that surrounds the pipe and the whole thing's sh- shaking, you know. And then we s- stood in the control room where you could throw things into the into the water as it's shooting out of the back of the dam. I threw an apple in it and just disintegrated the apple. Uh, that dam's more like like the Hoover Dam, you know. And yeah, they took us on a field trip inside the dam. You know, they're like you're 300 feet below the below the water level at the water intake. Well, we're not 300 feet, probably like 100 feet. And it's cold and it's leaking. <laughs> they're like, right now you are under, you know, 100 feet of water, cold water, and it's really freaky. Anyway, I see you, River. Say hi. <laughs> Good boy. Oh, you're wearing your glow collar and you think you're going somewhere. 
we're not we're not going anywhere it's story time right now hold on so at this point we began the great climb and this went on and on and it was really steep and i thought that we would climb up the difference of you know like the bottom of the dam you know river level what would be the underside of the dam to like the top of the dam and then that's it you know and the dam's like 100 feet tall or something like that and yeah we climb eventually you know gradually after that turns out that's not what it was we climbed up you know to dam level to the top of the dam on the other side and and it turns out that the road uh kept going up and up and up and there's a high point a regional high point next to the dam you know a couple miles further on maybe five miles further on that's really high and what happened to us is we're climbing and there's some there's some traffic you know but it's okay it's not tons of traffic uh but we're climbing and climbing and climbing and then there was like three false flats where or false summits where you think okay this is going to be it and it's not and as you crest over onto the summit turns out there's another summit that you have to keep going and then another one that you keep going i should have pulled up the um, elevation profile on my computer to see how much more climbing we had to do dude on a on a loaded down bike that was work but you know i've done lots of big climbs and stuff um i climbed one time in spain from pretty much sea level to the top of pico which is uh, has a ski resort on top of it <laughs> which was i don't know eight thousand feet i don't know i climbed it all in one shot on a triathlon bike with a uh, road gearing on it and with a disc wheel on the back at a training camp and you know that was like three hours or something of just climbing average like eight percent grade or something so you know i'm okay but it just kept going and going and going. And there's a town nearby in that area. There was, and we saw the sign for it. We might have gone through it. I'll have to look. Uh, called Point Blank. And you would think that that's the Texas, you know, because there's cut and shoot and there's high noon and other like aggressive gun culture kinds of names for towns, Old West uh, names. There's a Westward Ho is a subdivision nearby where I live and Indian lakes and, you know, stuff like that. So Point Blank is really old. But it turns out it's not named after, you know, shooting somebody in the face. It's named after the French name uh, of a high point, and Blank is like maybe like the Blank family or the White family or whatever that was French uh, settled right there. And that's what I'm named after. It's So my last name is Blankner, and it's basically – the high point of the white family or, you know, just like uh, if your last name's like Jack Black. And uh, I had a friend growing up named Danny White, which is funny that he, he was black. But it then uh, the white family settled this area or what it was named after them. And it's a high point. And that's why we kept climbing and climbing and climbing. So I'm, I'm climbing my own namesake curse up this thing. And I pointed out to Kai as we went by, I said, hey, this is actually blank. Not point blank like a gun, but point blank after like Blankner, like our name. And he's like, oh, cool. You know, so it was kind of cool riding through that area, knowing that uh, we share a similar name. And, and my name, that's really rare, right? If your name's like Smith or Johnson or something like that, you know, you see your own name like all the time. But blank, it's kind of like Blankenship. You know, it's it's uh, kind of rare and, and kind of interesting. And Blankner is very, very rare. There's very few of us. And I think I mentioned on the previous podcast, if I didn't already, uh, the Blankners are from 
the White Baron in Germany, uh, Prussia, Austria area, and in the, the, the Bismarck, um, Kaiser era of the 1800s when he was trying to solidify Germany and Prussia and Austria all into one giant, uh, powerhouse, which I believe is the second Reich. I think, you know, there's like the Nazi crap or you got your, the third Reich, whether the first Reich was either the Roman empire, the was the Germans during the Roman empire is the first Reich. Uh, and then the second Reich was Otto von Bismarck trying to, uh, consolidating Germany. And then the third Reich was, uh, freaking psychopath Hitler. But my family got run out of Germany during the Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck era during, you know, wars. And, uh, he was a nobleman and that's, it's von Blanc. If you're a van, that just means you're from an area. Von is, um, royalty apparently, but a lower level royalty, like a nobleman or a baron. And the white baron was my great, great, great grandfather. And there was a big battle apparently. We have this written in diary, uh, from family members that came over from Europe. And I think he lost the battle. And then they burned down his castle and he uh, took took off with his family to escape. And then they eventually got on a boat uh, to America. And on the way to America to land in Boston, the somebody had a baby or they on the boat or there was a young baby uh, taken onto the boat. It was already born and the baby died during the trip. And there's a Blankner baby. Oh, they changed their name from Von Blanc because they were on the run and they um changed their name to Blankner and we are the only Blankners and there are no other Blankners. We're it. And when they landed in Boston, they buried the baby on the side of the road on a muddy road on the way from the port into like the town proper or something like that. And that's really sad, but that's where the Blankners come from. And Kai and I started up a little thing after learning this. My dad did a whole bunch of genealogy research. We actually have the diaries of the family. And we also happen to have the diaries of the other side of the family, the ones from Minnesota, the Germans and the um, the Swedes, uh, living out in the prairie that were lived in, in pioneer days out there and were uh, written in diaries of what it was like living out there and they were attacked by the Sioux Indians uh, during the Sioux Indian uprising, which is the famous, famous, famous thing that uh, in the Midwest, uh, right around the era of the of the Civil War, and they wrote down in diaries, which we have of living in their log cabins, and Sioux Indian uh, would come uh, through their, they'd walk through their houses, and you know they didn't speak the same language, and everybody would just freeze, and they would kind of look and kind of look around and then keep going and that happened but during the great sioux uprising which is a big tragedy for the sioux i'm not glamorizing and glorifying it anyway it was terrible actually what happened they had enough and they uh, killed some settlers and killed a whole bunch of settlers or whatever and during that uh panic and that my great 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 grandparents wrote in their diary that they fled the log cabin they couldn't get to the fort in time and they went out into the tall prairie grass which is famous, how tall the prairie grass is around, and hid in the prairie grass for like three days, I think, or something, waiting for it to be over. And they could hear people being killed around them and panic and running and gunshots. And and this went on for three days. And the sad, sad ending is after uh, Abraham Lincoln sent um, federal troops, the Union Army, to go round up the Indians 
and I don't call them Indians. It's unknown. It's Native American. I'm just sticking with uh, what I started off with. Uh, they rounded up the Indians, and the the white settlers were so upset they wanted to hang all the Indians that did this. And which you know, looking back, is just terrible because we took their land. You know, and of course they were pissed off and had enough, and they wanted yeah to hang all these people. And Abraham Lincoln said, this is too many. It was like 200 and something people, let's say. And he said, that's too many. You can't hang all these these uh, Native Americans, these Indians like that. Uh, and so he said, you got to cut it uh, in half. It's just too much. So they cut it in half, whatever the original number was. And it was still, and I think to this day, the greatest mass execution in America was the um, the hanging of the Native Americans of the of the Great Sioux Uprising, and my uh, grandparents on the other side were in that um, and wrote, have diary written, and my parents have it at their house, handwritten diary account of what it was like being under siege by the Indians. And here in Texas, there's a fort nearby called Fort Parker, and we went on a tour of it in scouts twice. And they give you a tour, and it's a it's a, a old pioneer fort, and it's real. And they talk about how what it was like that the, there's farmhouses around it, but they would get sense something was happening and there's a Native American, an Indian attack. And every, what they do is all the families flee their houses and they run into the fort and lock the gates. And then they try to endure the attack as long as they can until the Indians give up. <laughs> and, then, and then once things are settled, then they... Um, then it's over and then they can go back to living their lives again, uh, you know, farming and stuff in the local area. And I got to see in person, you know, like what the fortress looks like. It basically it really gives you a sense of what, oh, this is what happened to uh, what my family was dealing with uh, when they were settlers in, um, in this area. And what's really crazy is Emily's family is Choctaw. They're local uh, native. Uh, Choctaw is very much Texas. The irony of it all that, you know, Emily and I, her family, and she's not all Choctaw. She's only like, you know, whatever percentage. She's very much mostly white. But the irony of that her ancestors attacked my ancestors. <laughs> but yet today we're in love and we've had a family and and uh, why couldn't we all get along? And, and um, you know, I know why we couldn't get along because we were taking their land. But that the hatred and, and the hanging and the shooting and the burning down of everything and whatever was just so terrible. Anyway, back to, that was a tangent, the Von Blanc and the Point Blank. And uh, if you ever see a Blankner, there's a Blankner Elementary School in Florida. And there's a, uh, I have an uncle that was a nuclear engineer, a nuclear scientist that worked on the bombs and stuff like that in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He's famous. I've got an aunt that's a, an artist in San Francisco. And then there's a couple, there's a couple other Blankners, but we're it. That's it. All the Blankners. Uh, are spoken for. If there's a Blankner out there, we're related to him because the name was created on the fly and there's nobody else named Blankner. On their way over to escape Europe in the 1800s, the Blankners were. The Swedish one came over in the early 1900s and the German side of us came over before that. The other Germans that were out in Minnesota, not the Boston ones. And then the Scotch-Irish of us got here in the 1700s when Tennessee was still a colony. No, it was Indian Territory. And that's a long, long time ago. That's before the Revolutionary War, I think. And the they had the same situation where they were living in, uh, well, they had a nearby fort and they would run to the fort if they were under attack by Indians. And we have written diary accounts of that 
and what it was like. I guess the whole point is it's really cool that we've got written diary accounts of stuff. And what I'm doing right now is, you know, a recording of stuff. So to keep passing this on. And the if somebody in their family in the local village died, they would have to bury them by moonlight at night because if they went, if they left the fort or left the safety to go bury somebody out in the woods, they would come under uh, Indian attack. And so they would do it quietly under moonlight at night. And that's the way that they kept from being attacked. Because if they did it with torches, if they needed enough light where they needed a torch, that would attract attention and they would get killed. Crazy. What I really wish is we had more documentation from the Native American side of Emily's family, uh, the Choctaw side. We have very little of that, if any. That's Emily's side of things. I don't, I don't know that much about it. But I did grow up did not grow up. I had a good friend for quite a few years that lived right around the corner from me that was Lakota Indian. And that was really, really cool. He might've been on a couple of shows a long time ago. And uh, he taught me a lot about Native American culture and how they do things. And Lakota is, I think, way up north near the Great Lakes. And just a really, really cool guy. Hey, Rico, what's up? He was, he was very Lakota and also very naturally Zen, you know? Very much in tune with nature and nice approach to life and observation and how he does things. Okay, let's get back to the uh, bike ride. So Kai and I are riding along, climbing and climbing and climbing. And we also go through Cold Spring, Texas. And that's where there was, uh, before we left on the trip, I mentioned something about bears and mountain lions. And that there are mountain lions on occasion. They're really rare, but they do exist. And bears, a little bit more of, but they're pretty rare. But there are bears in East Texas randomly, and they don't get to be very big. And they're, you know, they're just kind of around. Don't think much about it, but they do exist. And the mountain lion thing is on occasion here in Brazos County and then down in South Texas, there'll be some animal livestock that'll get killed and then they'll have paw prints in the ground and the paw prints will be huge. And I actually saw a video of a guy a sheriff that went uh, was hunting in South Texas and they ended up shooting a mountain lion in South Texas and it was holding up the pole. He was like proud of it. And I was like, I was so disgusted. I was like, dude, there's so few of those in Texas. What are you doing? Killing the, you know, you should be proud of it. You know, kill it if it's attacking you, maybe, but then like, just leave it alone. You know, why do you, why did you do that? I, but I'll never forget it. Like I couldn't believe, uh, but the, anyway, they're around and they're just really rare. And so I Googled, uh, where are the mountain lions in Texas? You know, whatever. In Cold Spring, Texas, which we biked through, is a hot spot of mountain lions. They keep having sightings near there. And who knows if it's, you know, like local hysteria, kind of like Bigfoot or, you know, witchcraft or something. Okay. So then, kind of biking along. We finally get through all that. Oh, my God. It was, it was something else. Climbing that dam. And then we get to the point on the route where we start getting into, or majorly into the Sam Houston National Forest, which Houston is named after. Um, General Sam Houston, he was a colonel at first. The natives called him Colone, and in scouts, uh, he was called the Raven, and he was like a really good leader, and he tried to give land back, and maybe, I think he did, back to the Native Americans when he was, um, Texas was a country for a little bit before it became a state. I think either three or six years, we were our own country. And Sam Hughes, Stephen F. Austin, was the, was he the president of Texas? Anyway, we're in the Sam Houston National Forest is a big point. And so we're biking through. And being that the Sam Houston National Forest is a little bit closer to Houston, it's a little bit more civilized in a way. And what I mean is there's the occasional house kind of mixed in and stuff. And the, the, the I noticed that the uh, roads are a little bit more well-maintained. If it's a dirt road... It's actually like 
maintained a little bit better than what was in the Davy Crockett National Forest. And and it's only, I think, because of the proximity to more people being, you know, going there on weekends and stuff like that. So they take care of it a little bit better, make it a little bit more uh, usable. And uh, there's definitely logging and uh, um, controlled burns and, and, you know, stuff going on through there. But we're bike through and um, there's a camp, a Boy Scout camp called Camp Strake. And it used to be closer into Houston, but Houston's grown. So they they sold it and picked it up and moved it, and they built a whole new Camp Strake um, closer to Lake, really close to Lake Livingston now, in the middle of the same Houston National Forest near Cold Spring. And my plan was, uh, it's new. Kai and I are both Eagle Scouts, and I'm a Scoutmaster, and I grew up going to Camp Strake, the old Camp Strake. And I was like, oh, we should ride through it. It's the middle of winter. It's Christmas break. There might not be anybody there. So we take this right down this road, and we start biking through Camp Strake, and there's definitely people there. And uh, there was a guard gate with nobody at it that stopped us. We just rode through. And, you know, it's one thing if there's nobody there, but we're riding through and we start seeing tents and some kids doing activities. And Kai's like, Dad, we need to get out of here. And I'm like, yeah, this. But the route was going to go through and then pick up on the other side of it a a forest road. Well, they developed it so much that you can't tell where the forest road would connect or if if it even would connect. And then... um, um, once one side of me was like, well, we just say, you know, that we're scouts and we're just checking it out. And um, I grew up going to Camp Strake. We're both the Eagle Scouts and whatever. But then on the other hand, as a scoutmaster, whatever, the other thing that uh, they would say is as a scout leader, you should know better that you shouldn't be here without permission, you know, that you signed up and whatever, because they're very protective uh, with kids nowadays of making sure that nothing happens. They go overboard with like making sure that people aren't there that shouldn't be and stuff like that and we didn't have permission so yeah i was like dude you know what? we need to turn around and get out of here so we turned around and left but right when we left i noticed right before the gate there was a um a, a fire road a forest road and we started going down that and that's what i really wanted you know to get on the other side of camp Strake to get on this a different forest road but the same experience so i was like really happy we're on this forest road and it is raw and we're going along and there's logs that are falling across, big logs. It hasn't been used in so long that there's actually logs across it. So we had to pick up our bikes over logs. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And then we get to the end of that, and turns out there was a gate on the end of that. We just go under it. And we're at, uh, now a in Texas, they're called FM Highway. Uh, a state highway is called FM. And so FM 1760. FM, I'm trying to, we have 1179 around here. FM, usually a lot of times are four, four digits. Uh, I'm trying to think of FM, a loop is three digits. But anyway, it's FM, I'm just, I'm trying to think. Yeah, FM 19, State Highway 19, FM 19. Anyway, uh, FM means farm to market. Isn't that funny? And that's a Texas thing. And that, you know, you get your stuff from your farm to town. So usually they connect the rural part back into towns. And I think people that grew up here just don't even know what FM stands for. They don't think about it. But uh, FM, farm to market. And then, uh, but those are state highways. So we get on an FM, whatever. And we start riding, and then we got occasional detour and some gravel roads through the national. Oh yeah, we start going through the through the national forest uh, on a on a forest service road and a state park road is gravel, and then the sun starts going down. And but we're in the middle of the national forest, and there's like no traffic. And another thing I want to mention was a stroke of luck. Uh, looking back or during it, I was like, man, this is really great. It just happened to be that we started our three day trip. Uh, the weather window and the way Christmas lined up and the break and everything lined up, it was going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which I cannot recommend enough because that meant at night as we were wrapping up our ride, 
that we didn't have weekend traffic. We didn't have Friday night traffic of drunks and we didn't have Saturday night traffic of drunks and Saturday morning traffic of drunks. We weren't in the national forest on the weekend and at the lake on the weekend where there's drunks. So uh, I'm guessing it's some good advice. You know, uh, if you're going to do backpacking, pay attention to whether it's weekdays or weekends and which one's better for your trip and try to take that into account if it's possible. But it's getting dark again and we're in the national forest and then it eventually comes out of the national forest and oh no, we're in the national forest right up until Huntsville. And it wasn't really quite dark yet, but it was starting to get dark and I got a phone call, but I couldn't answer it. Um, my headphones uh, don't do really good with talking. They work, but it's just not great. And I saw that I was getting a voicemail, but it was from my father-in-law. And he, he, he calls stuff all the time just to say, hey, how's it going or whatever. So it wasn't a really good time for me. And then there would be a lot of, what? What? I can't hear you. What? I can't hear you. <laughs> like that with my headphones. And then we're riding along and then there's, I hear Kai talking a little bit. And I'm like, oh, I guess he talked. We call him Papa, uh, my father-in-law, Kai's granddad. And and he's really, he's he grew up being really active. Uh, he's really outdoorsy. Uh, he's an Eagle Scout, and he's like really enthusiastic about everything in life. He's such a great guy. And well, I thought Kai was talking to him because he just called me, and I couldn't answer. So I thought maybe he tried to call Kai, and Kai answered. So I go, "Hey, who was that?" And then Kai said, "Oh, that was Mom." And I go, "Oh, what'd she say? Or what's going on?" And she goes, "Oh, she just called." And I go, "Oh, okay. Well, what'd she, did, you know, what'd she say? Anything interesting, you know? Or what'd y'all talk about?" And he goes, "I told her that I'm tired of riding in the dark." I'm really not making fun of Kyle. I just want to get this down for documentation. You know, if this is for his history record, it's the, the Blankner baby on the side of the road in the mud. I'm like, like what? He goes, I'm tired of riding in the dark and being cold and hungry. And I was like, I don't know if he said hungry, but, but I'm tired of being riding in the dark and getting cold. And I was like, what? And he's like, huh? You know, or, and then I put two and two together real quick. He, the day before kind of bragged to me in a way that he didn't eat all of his all of his fuel that he needed. He only ate half of it, you know, his liquid fuel. Uh, and I was like, huh. And I said something, you know, on the, our first night, I go, oh, you should probably, you know, drink all your fuel. But I learned with Zen, you know, not to judge people and stuff like that. So I'm just like, okay, that's just interesting. You know, you don't have to give people your opinion all the time, you know, because you could be wrong. And so uh, you wait for things to unfold a little bit. But now I'm like, this kid, this guy, this grown man now has a habit of seems like a little bit proud that he's not eating all of his fuel. And now I'm having a great time. Nothing's changed. And he's grumpy. He is having low blood sugar and he's he's having he needs a Snickers bar. You know, he's having the Godzilla that needs a Snickers bar. And I said, dude, you're grumpy because you're not eating all of your fuel. You, there is nothing going on right now that's bad. This is awesome. Yes, we're going to get stuck in the dark, but this is what we came here for. We got lights. There's no traffic right here. Dude, this is awesome. This is it. I said, this is really it. And then I said, I'm actually regretting that uh, tonight's going to be the last night that we get to ride in the dark some together. We might not ever be able to get to do this again. And this is magical, man. We're in the pine forest on a safe road. It's gravel. It's just fun. And... I'm not grumpy, so it's a fuel issue. You need to eat some more fuel. And he's like, <sighs> you know how you are if you're grumpy and then people give you advice. <sighs> but he did it because a little while later, as I was out climbing him or whatever, I beat him up a hill. You know, I'm like, woohoo, like that. And then he started doing it back. And that means he's got energy. And then he started racing me kind of up, up hills a little bit. And 
so then I could tell, and then he was back. And then a little while later, I go, do you feel better? And he's like, yeah. And I go, yeah, that was that was uh, blood sugar and stuff. If you ever feel like that, or you're grumpy, and people around you aren't, or maybe you shouldn't be grumpy, then <laughs> the dogs are play fighting over here. We're going we're gonna to roll with it on the, on the mic so you all can hear this. One dog's got the other dog's uh, head in her mouth. That's <laughs> what you get with two hunting dogs. Is a German Shepherd a hunting dog? It's a working dog. Yeah, Shepherd. It's a working dog. The other dog's a hunting dog. Blue Mountain Cur. What's it called? Blue Mountain? No. Something Mountain Cur. Anyway, uh, they're squirrel hunting dogs from the Carolinas. Both these dogs free, by the way. And and they, they act like they, we got them for free. <laughs> but, but it's funny. So now we're riding along at night. Kai's in a better mood. But, oh, we did end up on a highway at night. They kind of sucked. But there was a little bit of shoulders. It wasn't the worst. And we got the rear radars and the blinky lights. You do feel like really safe, you know, well, safer. You definitely don't feel safe. You feel safer with the lights. You're doing as much as you can. And we even, as a joke, took a picture of a taqueria, a taco shop out in the middle of nowhere that was closed and sent it to um, Emily and Kai's girlfriend, Kylie, that uh, we were just going to keep riding through the night. That we were feeling so good. And they were like, uh, no, like that. And now it's like pitch black, right? It's really dark. And we end up on this quiet uh, highway, uh, which was uh, pretty cool. And there's a problem, though. And the problem is that the highway is going to intersect this little FM road that we're on, paved, you know, well-marked, uh, two-lane, is going to intersect a four-lane boulevard-divided highway with, you know, 70-mile-per-hour speed limit. And it's going to intersect it, and it doesn't go over it. It doesn't go under it. It doesn't go around it. It just dead ends into it and then picks up on the other side. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like, oh, crap. So we noticed this on the map. And I said, well, when we get there, we'll try. We'll figure out what to do. It looks like we could be able to cross. We'll just have to run across and then run across the grass in the middle and then get on the other side. Well, it turns out when we get there, and I said, maybe there won't be much traffic. You never know. Well, when we get there, there's traffic. There's no stoplights or anything, so the traffic's moving. And it took about three minutes before we had a gap where we could get across one side of it. The thing is, is in the middle of it, the grass median in the middle is a ditch. It's real grassy, heavy grassy, and it's got a fence designed, I guess, to catch cars to keep them from going over. But it's poles and then uh, cable, like steel cable. And there's no going through it, but it's only like waist high. But that meant that we got a handy Kai went over first and then I handed him his bike and then I handed him my bike, which weighed a ton. He was like, oh, my God. And then <laughs> and then uh, I went over that. And I'm telling you, that was an experience at night handing bikes over a fence in the middle of a median of a busy highway, you know, with our lights blinking. And it was just so crazy. And I, I wonder, like, if a sheriff saw us or a cop. Uh, they might have stopped us and be like, guys, guys, what are you doing? You know, I don't think they would have given us a ticket, but they might have been like, you can't do that here. Um, and then what's really funny is as we crossed and then, um, I start riding on this road, the road that we got onto had an off ramp from the highway onto it. And there's this big, beautiful pine cone. And I'm like, ooh, cause then I'm thinking we can make like two pine cones next to each other and put it on a plank. And then put Pine Burden 320 on it and put googly eyes on the pine cones and they get like Christmas ornament sized little like wire bicycles and put on there. And then we'll have like uh, a little stand up trophy memorabilia plaque kind of thing of Kai and I's trip. It'd be pretty cool and write the date on it, stuff like that. And we can always people go, what's that? And we go, oh, yeah, that's when we did this, you know, and (laughs) 
think it would be a good tattoo, a pine tree with a 320 under it. And uh, people would be like, what's that? And anyway, the um, he'll be like, my idiot dad took me on this long trip. Kai, Kai had a blast. He, he would tell you it was awesome. So then um, I'm like, oh, cool, pine cone. So I stopped my bike and then I almost get hit by a car. <laughs> I jumped out of the way. It's a van big van went by and i was like oh crap man and uh and that's part of the story is like where'd you get this pine cone i almost got hit by a car getting the pine cone and also in the middle of the day i think well, maybe when we stopped at chick-fil-a i noticed i had kai's shoes and then my, sh- my uh, flip-flop flip-flops uh tied to the top of my luggage rack well i didn't run a rope rivers run go 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 Yes, yes, it's freak out time. Go, go, go. This is why you get two dogs. They play with each other. It's playtime right now. They do this every night. Okay, you can egg them on. It's funny, they'll kind of pause and smack your hand and then they love it. Okay, um, I lost a flip-flop and I'm like, oh, that would be funny. Um, we'll put the pine cones on top of the one remaining flip-flop, you know, and then, then it's really... Each thing, you know, I almost got hit picking up this one pine cone. We got another pine cone, but then uh, the flip-flop. Why is it on a flip-flop? Oh, because I lost my shoes in the middle of this Davy Crockett National Forest. <laughs> I lost the other one. And without both of them, one's kind of useless. You know, you look like an idiot walking around with one shoe. Um, and then, uh, so that was my idea. And we still haven't done that yet, but we're totally good. And then the next thing is uh, we ride on, this, on the road a little bit. It's quiet. And then we hit downtown Huntsville. And Huntsville is a college town, and by downtown I mean like the residential, heavy, dense, populated area. With a, it's a college town, so there's apartment complexes, and it's the older part of town, so it's dense urban, um, well, dense houses that are older and um, small houses, um, so they're they're packed in closely, and a lot of intersections. And Huntsville is really hilly, and um, so so a lot of stoplights. It's so our, our road dead ends in, into this, right? Well, we got to take a right on it. And but I noticed that there's sidewalk and I said, Kai, how much how much farther do we have to go to get to Kylie's house? And he's like, uh, I think it's like a mile, maybe two miles. That's it. He showed me on his phone on a, on a map. And I'm like, OK, I go, dude, let's part of this ride. Let's ride on the sidewalks instead of trying to ride in the road. It's only for like a mile or two. It'll be fun. And so we rode on the sidewalks to stay out of the road because it's uh, now it's nighttime. It's heavy traffic, traffic ish and then uh, heavy ish. And then. We um and you know to add like we've ridden everything now we've ridden on a highway we've ridden on on farm roads we've ridden on uh, logging roads we've ridden on goat trails we've ridden on whatever and we've ridden on sidewalks in an urban set <laughs> done everything you can do everything on these bikes man and um yeah I almost got hit by a car coming out of an apartment complex that's how like urban it was uh you know driveway and then um Kylie could see us coming she was tracking Kai on a map. And as we got close, she was already outside and waiting for us on the on the sidewalk. And we get there around 630 at night, maybe seven o'clock at night. And um, the funny thing was, is we talked to her. She wanted a picture of us or something like that. So we're we're talking to her on the sidewalk coming out of the front door of this little old house. It's a house looks like it was built in the 60s or something. It's a one story, small little little house, you know, probably like twelve hundred square feet maybe or something like that. And it's perfect for for uh, a few people to live in to go to college. And. And I like old houses. I think they're really cool and they're fun to explore. And anyway, we're standing there talking to her and then she's like, it is freezing out here. Let's go inside. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. It is really, 
really effing cold. But we didn't notice because we were wearing the right gear and we had all the right stuff and we we're finishing up the ride and, and uh, we're well fueled and everything. And what a difference good gear makes, you know. And it's not like we're wearing like really expensive stuff. We're wearing cheap stuff, but the right stuff, you know, made of the right materials and enough of it. So we're done with the day. It ends up being another 120, 122 mile day, second one in a row. And we uh, get off the bikes, um, unpack some, just a little bit of stuff. And I said, hey, I'm going to have to wear my bike shoes. Uh, I got a gift card for Chipotle for 50 bucks. Uh, Emily's uh, dad, my stepdad, Papa, uh, the one that tried to call me, had given us a uh, $50 gift card, given me for Christmas a $50 gift card. And and by the way, this is a week of Christmas. Christmas was like on Monday, and this was the few days right after. We left the day after Christmas. And we... Uh, I was like, hey, I'll buy everybody dinner on this gift card and let's go to Chipotle and um, load up. So I wore my bike shoes, but I put on street clothes and I had a glass of wine. I go, do you have any beer? And they're like, no. Or she's like, no, it's girls. You know, they don't uh, pick in the beer. And I was like, do we have some, we have some like box wine? I go, cool. I had a glass of wine. I got two glasses <laughs> to celebrate. And then uh, we went to Chipotle in my bike shoes, uh, like Lisa suggested, that it was fine. And then I I got, yeah, we both got, we all got burritos and, and whatever. And then it ended up costing $48 or $49 and so many cents. It burned up that entire uh, gift card for the three of us. But I was, I was fine with it, you know, whatever. It's cool to put it to use so quickly. And I need to tell Papa that that's what we used it for. He'll think that's cool. He'll think that's cool. And either before we left to go or when we got back to her house, um, Top Gun was playing on the TV and because they all moved into this house very recently. They're all freshmen, I think, at college. They, you know, they went out and pitched in together or something like that and bought a TV. And freaking TV was immense. And it was like super high def. And, you know, Top Gun was filming super high def. We just stood there in just shock at the detail. You see the rivets on the plane? Uh, it's the Maverick movie, the later Top Gun. And that was pretty cool. And I texted uh, a couple pictures and fell asleep and woke up in the morning, took a shower, had coffee. Oh, I did. I planned for a couple of things. I planned to not assume that she would have coffee. And they did have a coffee machine, but she didn't really know how to run it. And she was the only one of the girls that lived there that was there. And so I brought my own Folgers uh, coffee singles. And in Scouts, I learned how to just drink coffee cold. And and now it's a thing, even. I don't need my coffee to be hot. Uh, but I did. I did it like a ceramic mug and put it in the microwave for like a minute or something and then added... Um, uh, my, uh, folders to it. So by the time Kai got up, I'd already have like a couple of cups of coffee and that was smart planning. And then for breakfast, oh, because it was Kylie's house. Uh, I asked if she could actually have some cereal and milk, the cereal that I like. And she went out and bought some. So she had it. So I had the cereal that I liked. It was nice having a shower yet again after being out on the road all that time. And then we got started and it was okay that we actually got started a little bit late because I'd planned for it to be the easiest day. And this day could be a little bit of a celebration of our accomplishment as long as everything was going right. And we say goodbye and I'm trying to think if there's anything else in Huntsville um, of, of note. Uh, we crossed over the freeway on a reasonably safe bridge and then just within a few miles, we're back in the national forest all over again. <laughs> I mean, just like that. It was so cool. And I think Kai made a mental note. If he's ever at Kali's house, he can go ride in the National Forest um, really easily from where uh, uh, the route that we took. I don't think he'd ever thought of going that way, except, 
you know, the route that I'd made takes us that way. And we're back in the national forest and we're riding along. It's pretty great and kind of having fun pedaling. And we got back to the western side of the, very much the western side of the national forest. We're about to leave the national forest and um, I'm standing and pedaling up over a hill. And Kai mentioned something. He's like, Dad, why don't you stand and pedal more often? It makes you way faster. And the thing is, I said, ah, I really haven't had a need to. And um, my goal is to be like consistent and even. I don't need to stand and pedal so much, you know. But I can tell you where I got good standing and pedaling is for a year. I rode a single speed or a fixed gear, same bike, flip flop the hub. And I even rode the MS150 on a single speed. And it had a big gear rollout. And so it was hard to pedal. So I really learned how to stand and climb uh, and use the bike back and forth. Well, one thing it does, using the bike back and forth a lot or not using the bike back and forth a lot, but just standing and climbing under a heavy load. So the bike's weighed down a little bit is if you have a weak spoke, it'll pop. Well, guess what happened? I popped a spoke and uh, Kai and I pull over. I heard it pop. And then a little while later, like a couple minutes later, he goes, Dad, uh, I think you I think you broke a spoke. And I go, how can you tell? And he goes, the wheel is wobbly looking you know it's wavy and i was like ah oh, crap and so we we pull over at a closed uh biker bar it's too early in the morning for the bikers to all be there it's the middle of the week so it's there's just nobody there right now and they got picnic tables outside and stuff and we're bikers <laughs> so like all right and i look at it and this is when i realized and when i got back to the house i put i did a little bit of research and found this is true um with disc brakes on one side of both wheels and with the cassette on the other side of your rear wheel basically it makes your rear wheel uh you can't replace a spoke in the field with a metal spoke even though we were carrying metal spoke we carried some spare spokes with us each of us um and then um your only spoke that you can repair on the road easily with a metal spoke if you're carrying spare spokes is on modern bikes is the right front wheel right side of your front wheel that is the only area that you probably won't have to remove a rotor for your disc brakes or um, a cassette uh, for your um, for your drive line on the drive side of your rear. So all these, uh, it didn't weigh much. You know, carrying these metal spokes, I know, well, that was kind of stupid, worthless. Um, now, in my research, they do make, you know, there's a there's a mountain bike brand uh, lately that's come out with, Bird, it's called Bird, B-E-R-D. I guess it's somebody's last name. And they um, they make fiber spokes that are made out of like nylon, um, futuristic Kevlar nylon uh, rope. And people have got this misconception that spokes, uh, uh, they think spokes uh, hold the wheel up, but actually they they pull. So ropes are really strong for pulling, right? So if you use this like basically <laughs> the equivalent, they're 12 times stronger than steel per weight. So they actually float on water and they're, uh, uh, they're fabric and then they absorb uh, shock. So they end up being really great spokes. Um, so I Googled around and found that actually somebody makes and has been making for a long time Kevlar, thin Kevlar rope uh, spoke repair kit, which is way easier to thread through the available space to um, to repair a spoke and if you break a spoke. And um, I would get one of those actually and carry that as a spare if I'm doing a bikepacking trip again. And it's called Fiber Fix is what it's called, Fiber Fix. And they're hard to find in real life and brick and mortar, but you can order them online. And the instructions are really simple. A lot of people claim that save their ride, and it's really nice. Um, some guys were on a three-day something like that uh, bike packing trip. There's a video online, and the guy broke his spoke um, on day one, 
instead of day three like me, halfway through day three. He broke it right off on day one and they got a long ways to go and they fixed it with the fiber fix and it held up the rest of the ride. So the stuff really does work. And it comes with a little spoke wrench and all kinds of stuff. And it comes in a little tiny, little tiny little Ziploc bag. But you know what, like Lisa said, was um, don't worry too much if you break a spoke. It'll probably make it the rest of the trip. Just ride carefully. And I have ridden long distances before on a broken spoke. And what you do is you just don't tilt the bike side to side with heavy pedaling action. You don't torque that rear wheel. I mean, that's what broke the spoke in the first place. The danger of breaking a spoke is now the rest of the spokes have to take a little bit more load. And you're running a risk of breaking more spokes and more spokes and more spokes and more spokes. And once you break two spokes, you're pretty screwed. Um so, yeah, I've ridden a long time on one spoke and made it just fine just by riding carefully and not pushing it too hard and not twisting the bike too hard and not leaning the bike over on its side because that torques the wheel. It'll break more spokes. Uh, just try to keep the bike as vertical as possible so your weight's coming straight down. And that, and don't pedal, don't sprint and pedal and don't wrench the bike side to side uh, pedaling um, uphill. And uh, Kai said, uh, let's look at it a little bit further, but let's, there's a, um, there's a gas station. He, he remembered that there's a gas station just like a couple miles down the road. And he said, let's, let's grab something to eat there. Let's grab a sandwich there and think about it some more. And, um, oh, when I was at Kali's house, I topped off the air. It did need to top off a little bit with my actual hand bike pump, my portable pump, um, mini pump. You know, that puts actual nitrogen air into the, into the, uh, into the tube, <laughs> into the tire. And the sealant worked. I, I used, it probably had some orange seal in it, but I used, Stands, I think. I had some stands laying around, and that's what worked. Um, so we pull up to this gas station in Richards, Texas. And Richards takes very, very small. It's just an intersection, really. And there's um, a, the one gas station. There's an abandoned downtown that's nothing left of that. And and I'm talking, it's just like an old western looking, like the little the little businesses along a main street. But they're all half gone, whatever. And uh, But there's a gas station. And the gas station is half gas station, half very small barbecue joint. And, you know, like 10 tables. And uh, Kai and I look crazy in all of our cycling kit. It's the middle of the day, and it's a work day. And we walk in, and we're planning on just grabbing a sandwich sandwich, you know, one of the sandwiches you shouldn't eat, a fast-made sandwich, um, and maybe like a Snickers bar uh, like we did on day one. But um, we could smell the barbecue, and there's a little dry erase board with the special of the day is like a you know barbecue sandwich, <laughs> probably every day. And... Um, and a side or something like that. And, you know, for eight bucks or something. And I said, Kai, do you want to, you want to actually get like a real sandwich and sit down? We got lots of time because we're only doing 80 miles a day instead of 120. And he said, uh, yeah. And I asked the waitress because it was kind of sketchy. I was like, Hey, um, is it okay if we sit down there and it's, cycling kit y'all nobody's gonna care and she's like no darling come on in sugar you know and i was like all right cool so we go in and sit down and man we got some weird looks you know like the record scratch kind of thing when we walked in it's a bunch of road crew construction guys um trying forester loggers and stuff and then us in our spandex but um people are a whole lot nicer to you when you're willing to spend money you know and you're just minding your own business and you're nice and plus we look kind of rough ourselves you know we we're kind of beat up after three days on the road, biking, dirty. And uh, we sat down and had, I had a chopped, maybe we both got chopped chop beef sandwich. And I got a side of potato salad because the potatoes, you know, are starchy, lots of good calories. Kind of got something else. Um, but potato salad was so good. Uh, you know, it's cold. You know, potato salad's got a little bit of mustard flavor to it. And it's just it was spicy and good. It goes good. And the sandwich, chopped beef with um, uh, pickles, you know, and onion. And so it's like real tangy and warm it's a warm sandwich 
And yeah, that was just really, really nice. And we get back on our bikes and the rest of the way home, Kai and I have ridden a lot of it. And so we're riding and we're going through um, gravel roads. We're out of the national forest. We're out on the prairie. And that's when we hit the headwinds. It was so bad, the headwind that we were going into, especially because now, kind of like the lake effect, we're out on open prairie and there's way fewer trees to slow down the uh, wind. So, you know, what looks like on the um, on the weather, you know, that it's a 10 mile per hour wind is actually more like a 15. Uh, seems like on the prairie, you know, the wind tends to gather speed and get worse and worse. And it's a direct headwind. And we're riding, we're taking turns riding in front of each other. And then we got to go through the town of Navasota and we ride through a part of Navasota I've never ridden through before. And Navasota's got a, I don't even know if it's got a nice side, but it's got a kind of a, a sketchy kind of side to it. And that's our route that we went through. <laughs> and uh, so we're riding through this part of town. Um, streets are all busted up. It's kind of, kind of like, I, I swear somebody yelled at us. I don't know if Kai heard this or not. From about a block away, somebody goes, hey, let me see your bike. Don't ever respond to somebody like that. Don't ever let them see your bike. Um, and also, I remember one time I was in a bad neighborhood and somebody asked me, hey, how much does that bike cost? And you just don't say anything back because you know what they're going to do. They're going to take it and then go sell it. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we're in the sketchy part of town. And uh, we take what was funny is um, way off to the right, there's some dogs, big dogs. There's like two of them, I think. And they see Kai. Kai's out ahead of me by about 100 feet. They see Kai and they just make a beeline for Kai at an attack angle from the side, right? Like a 45 degree angle. And so they are at full speed uh, closing on Kai at about a 30, 45 degree angle, right? And racing to meet up with him. And on my map, on my computer, I knew that we were about to take a right-hand turn. And something funny happened. Kai, uh, as he took that right-hand turn, the dogs didn't know that he was going to take a right-hand turn. They figured that he was going to keep going straight. <laughs> this dog couldn't make the turn fast enough, and the street was a little bit wet. And this one dog fell down and slid across the street on its butt while trying to run at the same time, you know, to change direction. It was kind of like a fighter planes, like in a dog fight, where one plane can all of a sudden just, like a UFO, you know, take a 90-degree turn out of nowhere. <laughs> the dog slammed into the corner, and by the time I got to them, they were exhausted. It was funny. And um, then we got out of this kind of sketchy neighborhood, and... You know, as long as you're safe, I just consider it an adventure. And we're on bikes. We could probably get away from anybody that's, you know, trying to chase us or something like that. And I'm not really that worried about it. Then uh, now we end up on this highway. It kind of sucks, but it's got a wide shoulder. And we end up over the Brazos River and over the Navasota River, actually. Right-hand turn. Now we're on a road that we ride all the time. And now it's going to be a mix of gravel and uh, pavement. Um the rest of the way home on roads we are extremely familiar with. It's our ride at once, two times, one or two times a week. Um, so that's nice. It's it's easy home except for the freaking headwind. The headwind made it suck. And then Kai and I always have this thing where we race each other at the end of a long ride. And Kai actually started having trouble. He started complaining that he was getting cramps in his legs. And I was like, oh, I might beat him to the house. And he wanted to stop at the gas station like a quarter mile from our house to go in and get a chocolate milk as his recovery drink. And uh, he was trying to end the ride before we got to the house so that there wouldn't be a race to the end of the house. And I'm like, OK, so we get to the gas station. I give him my credit card. He goes in and he buys he buys a chocolate milk and we stand there for a little bit. We're, we're basically done. And then, um, no, was that this ride? 
Actually, I think that was from a different 100-mile ride that we did. Anyway, Kai's, Kai is worn out. I remember that, and he's cramping a little bit. And there's one intersection before our house that has a stoplight, and it's a left-hand turn, so if it turns red, you're stuck. But there's sidewalk off to the left, and there's, like, little ramps to get up on it. And um, I'm, I'm behind Kai a little bit. I see he keeps looking back and looking back and looking back to see what I do, and then he caught me. I got up on the sidewalk on the left-hand side. I crossed way over the road and got up on the sidewalk left-hand side so I could make that light no matter what. And when I do that, that means that uh, Kai knows that there's a race. It's on. And then <laughs> Kai did, does, he looks back, he sees me do it. He does the exact same thing. And then he ends up, um, he ends up on the wrong side of the road and he has to do kind of a U-turn through like a median thing. And that slows him down. So I put down the hammer, even though with my broken spoke, I cross over the road. There's a break in the median. I cross over the road. I ride up a sidewalk. There's an elementary school. And uh, it's horrible, like uh, rough uh, dirt and grass, patchy grass, which makes it rougher. And uh, uphill and then a curb and, and then a ramp and all this crap. And, like, it's just really, really ugly and nasty. And I go at it at full speed, broken spoke or not, because I'm like, dude, I could beat Kai. And then we uh, – there's a there's – a, a pinch point that if whoever gets to that pinch point first, if Kai gets to that pinch point first, I'm doomed. There's like no way I can beat him. And he got to it like a millisecond before he cut me off to get to that pinch point first. And it's the sidewalk that goes through the woods just a little bit. And now he's in front of me. And then the rest of it's actually steep uphill. He's a much better climber than me. My bike's heavier. I'm exhausted from what I just tried to do. And so he gets to the house first. Um, you know, and it's just up a street, a short street. And, uh, but he got back to the house first, but, we gave each other a fist bump and said, dude, that was freaking awesome. And I go, I almost beat you. And he goes, I wasn't expecting you to do that. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I said, I think I saw some weakness there, so I was going to try to take it. And uh, yeah, so we got to the house and chilled out. I don't think Emily was there. She was at work. And uh, we just relaxed for a little bit and then started eating. And uh, we're still unpacking from this thing. I still got some gear laying around that I got to unpack. And yeah, we finished like middle of the afternoon. And aside from me breaking a spoke, which has nothing to do with the bike, these are actually aftermarket wheels that I put on this, the wheels that came on it. And um, breaking the spoke and a flat tire, again, nothing to do with the bike. Uh, well, not even a flat, a slow leak that patched itself. Uh, the bikes held up great. They're Vast bikes, V-A-A-S-T. Wish we could get sponsored by them. And I absolutely love them because they're as light as carbon, but they're made out of magnesium. The frames are magnesium and magnesium has a natural dampening quality to it. So they're perfect for gravel because gravel is just constant chatter, you know? So these are as light as carbon fiber. They're just a tad bit more expensive than aluminum. Uh, magnesium's a really inexpensive metal. Uh, magnesium has a problem where if it catches fire, you won't be able to put it out. These bikes won't catch fire. <laughs> it takes like 400 something degrees. It, they said these are bikes are alloyed with some um, rare earth stuff. So the problems with magnesium are out. You can change the properties of metal by just adding just a little bit of something. You know, like stainless steel. Steel is basically iron and nickel. And then if you add enough nickel, I think it is, and chromium, then um, then it becomes stainless steel and it won't rust, right? But it's still iron, mostly. And uh, magnesium will not corrode and will not catch fire and stuff like that. If you add just enough neomidium and manganese or, you know, whatever. And, uh, but, but uh, magnesium is lighter than aluminum actually. And it's stronger than aluminum. 
um, and it's really inexpensive to make. Uh, the only thing that I've been cautioned on is if you sand magnesium, you end up with magnesium powder, and that's uh, that'll catch fire actually pretty easily. Uh, magnesium is what's in sparkler. You know, when you light a sparkler, that's basically magnesium powder all along it, and that's how bright that that stuff will get. But basically, you get the right quality of the finest carbon fiber because of the vibration uh, dampening properties of magnesium um, for just a hair above the price of aluminum. And it doesn't corrode. And uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. We've been riding these bikes for two years, not a single problem with them. Uh, there's been a magnesium bike. There's uh, a Pinarello made a magnesium bike and they won the Tour de France on it uh, back in like 2006. Uh, yeah, they're, they're great. And it's a underappreciated metal. And I will not buy a carbon fiber carbon fiber bike again if i can get a vast because vast bike v-a-a-s-t vast uh, you get the best parts of carbon fiber with um the price of aluminum and it's just it's crazy absolutely crazy they um they ceramic coat it too just to add people's nervousness you know that uh whatever and then um along with the alloying so they're fine they're they're great and then they, they do a fat tube welding, so it looks like a 90s Cannondale, like how big the down tube is. It's really cool. And somebody did it. They make a road bike, and somebody did a review. A big-time YouTuber did a review of their road bike. It's the ride quality is unbelievable, like so good. But then I, I took my rear, rear wheel in like the next day to get the spoke fixed. And, um, and then the first day at work, I showed people a map of everywhere that we went, some people, and they were like, Dude, holy crap, because it's this big 320-mile clockwise ring. And I think that's been pretty much the aftermath of it. Uh, right afterwards, I didn't want a gravel bike at all for a while. I think the very first thing I did, and also I didn't want a bike, and the pool was still closed a little bit. So I think I went, I did swim, and, uh, oh, I I ran once, and then um, a, a few days after we finished was going to be a New Year's Day um, uh, 15k for me, 5k for Emily, a trail run. So on my mountain bike, I went and pre-rode the trails that the, um, the race was going to be on the day before the race. And that took like two and a half hours, almost three hours. And that was a few days after I finished. I did not want to be on a gravel bike again, not on the road for a while. Um, I had enough, you know, and yeah, that plus a, a run and then some swims and, uh, that's all I've done. And I might go gravel bike this weekend, and I think that wraps it up. Okay, I'm going to go eat something, and I'll wrap up the show with any thoughts about how it went and uh, what I would do again and what I would not do again. And uh, we'll be right back. All right, and that's a show. Glad to have that behind us. Will we do it again? I don't know. (laughs) It was pretty hard, and we really got lucky there with some stuff. Races that are coming up. There's a local triathlon that I might do in March. There is uh, Kai's races where he's doing the Texas mountain bike race series, the spring series, and they have a bunch of different races. And then also I would really like to do gravel locos, which is about 150 miles gravel race. And then I keep eyeballing doing a self-supported, probably a half Ironman this spring would be kind of nice. And then maybe a full Ironman in the fall. We'll have to see. I got to get my run volume up a little bit more before I tackle a full. All right, that's enough. Y'all need to go out and get some training done. Hope you enjoyed the show. Everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out. Out.